Emergency medicine extract with Sanjay and Mike. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah, welcome back, everyone. And it's Happy New Year. It's January, and I assume you're listening hungover, having had the most epic New Year's Eve of all time. Woke up and we're like, you know what I'm going to do for the first date? My New Year's I'm resolution. Gonna get my learn on. I'm going to get my EMA learn on right now. Yeah, you know. The sad thing is probably a lot of people actually worked yeah. on uh, you know, New Year's Eve. Amanda's working this New Year's Eve, okay. the, like kind of overnight shift. So. But you have little kids. There's no New Year's. I mean, what is that? Yeah, New Year's Eve. It's the spirit of it. It's, it's the start of the new year. It's a clean slate. It's a new beginning. No, no, no. It's a night where you spend way too much to go to a, like a really lousy meal or a club or so, some classic would be like some kind of comedy club or something like that where you spend like. Way more money, see an inferior product. No, New Year's Eve, no good. Terrible holiday, right? We can agree on that. Worst holiday. I like New Year's Eve. Well, I like New Year's Day. I do like sort of the okay, feel but I'm not of the talking New Day. About you got New the Rose Bowl game. Oh, I, I'll wake up and watch football all day long, but you know, I'm, I mean, not, I'm talking about New Year's Eve itself. I feel like there's a lot of stress about what you're going to do and all that kind of stuff. I got to say, in my lifetime, I've had some pretty epic New Year's Eves. You have not? No, I've had lots of great New oh, Year's okay. Eves. okay. I'll say when you get older, it does lose a lot of its luster. Yeah, especially when you have it's, little kids like you and you're going to be in yeah. bed by like, you're like, if That's you true. make it to New Year's in New York, you're good, right? Yeah. Oh. Like 9 p.m. Oh, hold like, on. Yes, we did it. That, that is what we do. Yeah, no, 9 I'm p.m. I'm quite aware. Oh, midnight? <laughs> what? What kind, how, Who could stay up till midnight? Well, it gets worse, just so you know, because at least you have an excuse for going to bed at 9 p.m. because you have little kids that are already up past their bedtime at 9 p.m. Me, I'm going to try to go to bed by 10 o'clock. I have no excuse. My kids are going to be out. Doing God knows what, I'm just over it. Yeah, it's sad. I don't use this word often. It's starting to feel like you're turning into a curmudgeon. <laughs> oh, I'm, I wear that as like a badge of honor. I'm, I'm thrilled. At least now I know what to get you for Christmas this year. <laughs> what well, shirt says curmudgeon. Hello, my name is curmudgeon. <laughs> no, I, mean, I, I, like, get myself, I like having a good time. I'm going to get myself one that says, I'm with curmudgeon. <laughs> I like those duos of shirts. Do you like? I don't like. I don't own any. Yeah, I'm with say. stupid. Yeah, shirt. but when I, when I see them, I'm like, that's kind of funny. Do you feel that way at all? Um, I I feel like it's funny because you see them on Instagram yes. or like something like that, yeah. where it's like perfectly set up and like the whole backdrop of it. You know, I I'm not seeing a very clear picture, but they're in New Orleans and it says something spooky, and I'm with spooky and blah blah blah. But most of the time, you know, the guy's walking on the wrong side of the yeah. other person. The arrows are pointing wrong and all that stuff. So it kind of loses some of its luster. Maybe that's why but I don't have Instagram, one. on Instagram, it looks maybe great. Maybe I don't have one because I guess making it work yeah. takes a lot more effort than I realize. That's right. Like you wear it for a whole day and it works for about Because it is seconds. different than matching shirts. Like you do like a matching, you know, like with your family or whatever. Like it's like- the you family stand, reunion yeah, shirt, you could you stand mean? wherever. You yeah. Could, but with the, there's usually an arrow. Yeah. On the duo shirt. Absolutely. You really got to have it aligned. Yeah. And if you're not, you're just pointing to some poor ladies walking down the street saying you're with stupid. Innocent bystander. Exactly. I don't know what this has to do with EMA. What has to do with, I I don't know either. Uh, It's 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 going off the rails. Happy New Year, everybody. Starting to feel like uh, we have- You know, we should stop drinking before we do this. I've been meaning to talk to you about that. Yeah, but that's the best way to empathize with the people listening. You really want to put yourself in their shoes. If you're listening the morning of January 1st, I want to feel what you're feeling right now. A little headachey, (laughs) a 
a little dehydrated. Well, you worked a night shift, so you probably feel that way. I do, actually. <laughs> Maybe that's why this thing's going so far off the rails. We don't usually tape, you know, right after a night shift, but yeah. what can you do? Sometimes, uh, sometimes, sometimes the schedules don't permit. And here just, we are. That's just that's just how the the cards laid themselves out this time. That's how the the deck. Yeah, fell. <laughs> you're not on your A game. <laughs> that much is clear. The metaphors and whatnot. Uh, the... You know, I will say this. Uh, do you make New Year's resolutions? Uh, no, not really. Oh, I do. Honestly, I don't. Yeah. I mean, I have, but, you know, it's not a, a regular part of our family traditions. We make New Year's resolutions that's good. in this family. It we do like them every year. I'm going to resolve to make New Year's resolutions. Hey, that's a great resolution. It's a resolution once removed. I'll just say, I recommend it. It does sort of give you something to look for. Well, we get a little like in detail with ours, but even something's kind of simple to shoot for for the year, I feel like it's a good optimistic way. I'm going to go ahead and go pro New Year's resolution. Yeah, I'm not anti them. I'm just pro laziness. They are definitely the opposite <laughs> of being lazy. No doubt about that. You got to work for a New Year's resolution if you do it right. Yeah, no, I've worked. I feel like in my lifetime and probably lots of people out there are thinking the same thing that like, eh, I've worked enough. <laughs> Some of them are graduating residency in a year. And they're like, I've worked enough. New year, <laughs> new beginning. I'm going to start with a break. <laughs> I'm going to take more vacations. Yeah, that's a good resolution. There you, that is a resolution, yeah. but it takes work to plan a vacation. So hard. See that? So much easier just to kind of wake up and muddle through the day. This is getting depressing now. <laughs> No. Happy New Year, everybody. I hope you had a great New Year's Eve. I hope 2023 is an awesome year. I hope the Bruins still have a bowl game yet to play. That's right. That would be good because that means one of two things. They're in one of two very important games. Let's go. Let's go, Bruins. Come on. Come on. Let's do it. All right. And let's go through uh, what we got this month. We got 18 papers on tap. Which is less than our usual 20 to 24. And the reason for that is because there weren't 20 that we really thought were worth covering. I mean, that's the honest truth, yeah, right? Well, we don't want to waste your time. So, Especially not on January 1st. <laughs> yeah. New Year's resolution, don't waste the listener's time. There's only 18 papers worth covering. After this 14-minute introduction. <laughs> you know what? People may have skipped through this anyway. As part of your New Year's resolution, if you're still listening, listen to all the intros. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're really the last. I was listening to the last one on the way in here. Yeah. I was talking about how I can control the weather, which is 100% true. That's a great and, one. Which I did do. Sometime we should go through a list of all of our superpowers because we both have some. Yeah. I literally was watching some college football coach the other day saying it was, it was rainy and stuff. And they're like, well, we just talk about control what you can control. You can't control the weather. So I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Most you don't have can't. a coach on your staff that can control the weather? Because yeah. I'm available. <laughs> they could hire you. That's not bad. That's not bad. I wonder how, you know, like if you could make it very specific to when they have the ball versus when, you know. Whoa, I've never tried to make it that specific. But hey, I, New Year's resolution. <laughs> hone weather controlling abilities Write to offense and defense. Got it. So we've got 18 papers this month. Uh, I've got a randomized, couple of randomized trials, actually. One on uh, fluids and pancreatitis. I've got a cool pediatric UA one. My House of Medicine ones, if you listen all the way to the end, are actually pretty interesting this month. One's on. The cut and paste in the medical oh, record. Oh, yeah, I love that paper. That's a really good paper, uh, which uh, they also covered, the boys covered on the right on Prime in the PCMA. Oh, cool. And so that's, you know, getting a lot of play, I think, this month. And I actually have a lot of RCTs. It's a little RCT heavy for me. They're not all huge, but, you know, the, that methodology is well represented in my, you know, block of papers. And after we're done, we'll have Jess and Jenny step in with their ultra summary. 
And then little triple T A L N. Time to talk that nerdy. And it's retractions. Yeah, talking retractions, about retractions, which is like when babies don't breathe right. I think. I think this is different. Are you sure? I, Have you heard the segment yet? I haven't heard it, but I know the full title is the the Committee on Publication Ethics Guidelines on Retractions. That's weird that they would have guidelines about baby breathing. They might also be talking about <laughs> retractions in medical journals and things like that. Oh, man. Yeah. You're so smart. That's that. It's that. So uh, I'm ready. I Happy feel, New Year. Happy right. January Happy 1st. New Year, everybody. Let's get to it. Paper chase. Abstract number one. Aggressive or moderate fluid resuscitation in acute pancreatitis. This is by De Madaria et al. from the New England Journal of Medicine. So starting out with a big New England Journal randomized trial here. Patients with acute pancreatitis have high rates of morbidity, associated multi-organ dysfunction, and mortality with rates reaching up to 25% of them needing ICU level of care. Patients with acute pancreatitis get sick. I think we know this. We've all been taught this in our residencies or our training programs. The traditional ED mantra for many, many years has been to treat these patients aggressively with fluid resuscitation, right? And we were training, it was kind of like you did like four liters or something like that for patients who came in with acute pancreatitis. And this strategy is based largely on animal models and on early observational data showing that hypovolemia and hemoconcentration were both associated with pancreatic necrosis. Again, observational data here. But then a very recent, in 2020, actually, meta-analysis on the topic didn't find any benefit from aggressive rehydration and suggested the practice may actually be associated with harm. The issue why we can't change practice on the base of the meta-analysis is that the studies included were very small and there was a lot of heterogeneity between the trials. So this trial that we're talking about in this paper is called the Waterfall Study. You're not going to spell it out for going us? to tell oh. you, but... You're going to have to use your imagination a little bit. It's the early weight-based aggressive versus non-aggressive goal-directed fluid resuscitation in the early phase of acute pancreatitis. Don't go chasing waterfalls. <laughs> I was waiting for the L. So I could see letters occasionally, but the two, the last two L's. There's no L's. There's no L's. There's I don't no. even know if there's L's in any of the words. Yeah, waterfall. No, oh. there weren't. Certainly not in the last several words. Yeah, the, so. I guess goal, fluid, and early have L's in them. <laughs> yeah, but those are way earlier in the... Nah, I do not approve. So this was, I agree, acronym no good, trial pretty good. This is a multi-center, open-label, parallel group, randomized controlled superiority trial from 18 centers across four countries, India, Italy, Mexico, and Spain. They approached a consecutive sample of adult patients with acute pain and pancreatitis, less than 24 hours of pain, and they defined acute pancreatitis according to the revised Atlanta classification, which basically requires patients to meet two of the three following criteria. Typical abdominal pain for pancreatitis, serum, amylase, or lipase higher than three times the upper limit of the normal range or signs of acute pancreatitis on imaging, like on a CT, like there's some, you know, evidence of necrosis in the pancreas. They excluded patients with CHF, right, because sort of randomizing them to aggressive fluid is not that good of an idea. Moderate or severe pancreatitis also got excluded. So shock, respiratory failure, among a few other things. They're really focusing their efforts on mild pancreatitis, which I think is okay, 
because we have sort of been taught traditionally, we treat that just like we do moderate or severe. You give lots of fluids. They randomize the patients to aggressive or moderate fluids. The aggressive fluid group got a 20 cc per kilo bolus of LR and then a 3 cc per kilo per hour infusion for 48 hours. And the moderate group got half of that, a 10 cc per kilo bolus up front of LR, only if hypovolemic. Okay, so if clinically they didn't look like they were hypovolemic, they actually got no bolus, followed by an infusion of 1.5 cc's per kilo per hour for 20 hours. The primary outcome was the development of moderate or severe acute pancreatitis with lots and lots, actually, of secondary and safety outcomes, and they calculated a sample size required of 744 patients to be able to detect a between-group difference of 10% in terms of progressing to moderate or severe acute pancreatitis. They didn't reach that 744-patient mark because the trial was stopped early. So they had a couple of planned interim analyses where, you know, a sort of non-partial data safety and monitoring board comes in, looks at the data, and can give some recommendations about whether the trial should be continued. And they stopped it at the very first interim analysis when 249 patients had been enrolled due to massive differences in the safety outcomes between groups, which were not balanced with any trend towards improved outcomes with aggressive fluid resuscitation. So the median fluid received was just about eight liters in the aggressive group and five and a half liters in the moderate group. So they did actually show a difference in the amount of fluid. It's not like they were both treated the same, something like that. That's a lot of fluid. Eight liters over what time frame? A couple of days. That's a lot of fluid. So that's but I what, guess that makes sense. If you get 20 cc per kilo bolus, that's going to be a liter and a half. And then you're getting three cc's per hour. That's like yeah. two or 300 cc. That's like 200 cc's per I hour. Didn't, I didn't go into the nuances of the study protocol because it's not totally relevant to ED providers, but they also had, it's very, very regimented. So if they decided that they needed more fluids, they could also give more boluses on top of that at sort of pre-prescribed rates of yeah. giving fluid. So they got a lot of fluid. The primary outcome of progression to moderate or severe pancreatitis occurred in 22% of the aggressive group and in 17% of the moderate group. Although not statistically significant, trends in almost all the secondary outcomes favored the moderate group. Severe pancreatitis, 6.6% versus 1.6%. Necrotizing pancreatitis, 20% versus 16%. ICU admission, 6.6% versus 1.6%, respiratory failure, death, all of them look like about that same magnitude of difference. The difference in fluid overload was statistically and clinically significant, with 20.5% of the aggressive fluid group going into fluid overload versus 6% of the moderate fluid group. So this is In truth, if you read the paper, an exceptionally well-done multi-center randomized trial with pristine methods, really well laid out. They had no patients lost to follow-up. There's no blinding. There's no blinding. They had no patients lost to follow-up. The focus of the paper was on relatively objective outcome assessments. Even, like I said, they go into a lot of detail about looking at, you know, how they defined fluid overload, respiratory distress, and they tried very hard whenever they could to use objective ways to do it because of this blinding problem. And they had explicit protocols, like I said, for fluid administration. Some of the limitations are 
As Mike said, it was an open-label trial, which could introduce bias into some of the more subjective outcomes. All sick patients were excluded as their focus was on mild acute pancreatitis. They used LR only. So that's something that they had just decided to do before the study started, I guess. And there was a little bit of lack of clarity for me on if fluids were given before randomization, if those things were somehow accounted for, if they you know, gave like some big boluses of NS or something like that. That was the only part, and I really looked to see if that was included in the fluid totals, and I just couldn't tell. The trial was stopped early due to safety concerns. They didn't reach their desired sample size. But again, there was no hint in the data that enrolling three times as many patients would have then flipped the efficacy finding somehow to favor the aggressive therapy. And there already was pretty clear evidence of harm with more fluid. So this paper is all over the blogosphere, all over the internet. A lot of people are talking about it. And it's just another paper kind of questioning this decades-old mantra of just giving sick patients, whether it be septic or pancreatitis, whatever, bunch a bunch of fluids and favoring more of a moderate fluid approach. Yeah, that pendulum seems to, the proverbial fluid pendulum seems to be swinging back towards, you know, let's keep people euvolemic and not err on the side of that tank. You know, we used to use that analogy, well, just keep the tank full, right? And it turns out that it's not a tank, it's something else. <laughs> it's really easy to go over the fullness and start leaking fluid everywhere. So this is good. This is really interesting stuff. Yeah, this is a good paper, well done trial big journal, going to change the way we practice, at least for a small subset of the patients that we see. Editor's commentary. There have been several studies recently suggesting that aggressive fluid strategies in the ED for sick patients, including those with SIRS and sepsis, may do more harm than good. Although it was stopped early due to safety concerns, the waterfall study was exceptionally well done and suggests that the traditional teaching of aggressive fluid resuscitation for patients with mild acute pancreatitis may also be wrong. I think we can use their findings to change practice and start treating patients with acute mild pancreatitis with a more moderate amount of maintenance fluids, use small boluses when necessary at 10 cc's per kilo, and you can avoid the bolus altogether if clinical hypovolemia is not present. Abstract number two, Association of Emergency Department Crowding with Inpatient Outcomes. This is by Swan et al., and it's in Health Services Research. And it's a little bit of an unusual paper chase selection that was driven by a few factors. The first is, it's a really great journal, Health Services Research, and we don't see a lot of emergency medicine literature pop up into it, so that kind of piqued our interest. The other is that the topic is super timely, given that crowding is seemingly off the charts in emergency departments uh, throughout America these days. And the third piece is that Renee Shaw is the clinical author. The rest are all health service researchers. And I generally find her work to be pretty compelling. So the key idea underpinning this paper is that ED crowding is not or may not be a localized ED problem to be endured by ED patients and ED staff. Rather, it may have important implications for patients in the hospital, whether they were admitted through the ED or not, whether they were you know, admitted or whatever on a day that was crowded or not. As such, if ED crowding has some effect there, hospital leadership should view it that way and take you know, a more aggressive role in trying to mitigate it. So this paper looks at the relationship between ED crowding on the day of hospital discharge and how that's related to a variety of important outcomes for patients that were already hospitalized. Okay, so it's 
crowded on Tuesday and you're going to be discharged on Tuesday, how does that influence your outcomes? I'll get into it. So it's, it, it requires a little bit of a mind bend. Specific outcomes they were interested in were inpatient length of stay, ED revisits within three days, readmissions within 30 days, and inpatient mortality. Conceptually, ED crowding could induce inpatient providers to discharge patients more quickly. You're feeling pressure. All these patients are being admitted. You're like, I got to make beds. I'm going to send people home, right? I'm just going to knock them out of there. You may even have like a, you know, a medical director or an ICU director, like kind of breathing down your neck They talk upstairs. about the czar, like, the bed yeah, czar. Saying like, hey, you got to, we got to move. We got to right. downgrade. We got to discharge. Right. So. so that could do that. And, and so that might... It conceptually at least reduce length of stay for those patients who are discharged on those days, but perhaps increase the bounce back rate or something like that. Conversely, busy days could just break the hospital, you know, which I think actually is what we see at our hospital. Other places may be different, but basically you got all this influx of patient, all these people, everybody's crawling up your butt and people are just like losing their minds upstairs. The inpatient doctors and, and nurses and such are trying to deal with the influx of new patients. They can't turn their attention to the people who need to be discharged. And that actually paradoxically delays, you know, discharges and increases length of stay, et cetera. So that's, so you could see it working in two, you know, sort of different ways. And all of this might be different depending on whether the patient was an elective admission. So someone who was getting surgery or whatever versus an unscheduled admission because they have different levels of acuity, et cetera. So anyway, that's what they're looking at. And the data comes from the Healthcare Access and Information data set, the formerly OSHPOD data set, which has changed its name from 2015 to 2017. And, and this data system requires detailed submissions of all inpatient admissions and ED encounters in the state of California by hospital, regardless of payer. The sample was restricted to adult patients and excluded some of the very small hospitals in California for pretty reasonable reasons. Again, the key outcomes were length of stay, bounce back rate to the ED, hospital readmission, and inpatient mortality. The key predictor was ED crowding on the day of discharge. And crowding in this study was pretty crudely defined, unfortunately. It was defined as the ED census on that day as compared to their average ED census. So, and they go through a whole thing saying, we think this is a justifiable thing for some empiric reasons. But basically they said, look, if you're a hospital that admits or that has 100 patients on average of your ED census, anything above 100 will be above the 50th percentile, anything below 100 will be below the 50th percentile, and they categorize them as you know, where that hospital's 75th and 90th percentile is. And then they compare those 75th, you know, at any given hospital, when they're on the 75th or the 90th percentile, how were these outcomes affected? That's how they did it. Their statistical models were adjusted for broadly hospital size, teaching status, and other observable variables. And they use a variety of reasonable econometric techniques and sensitivity checks to ensure that the robustness of their findings were pretty good. Ultimately, this strategy gave almost 6 million inpatient admissions from 300 hospitals throughout that two-year study period. The top-line findings were that hospital length of stay increased with increasing crowding, not by a lot, but there was this increase and it did have a dose response relationship. So as hospital crowding increased or the level of crowd of ED crowding, I should say, increased, so too did the inpatient length of stay. But it only increased by a few a couple of percent, really, the length of stay. In terms of revisits, interestingly, 
higher ED census was associated with a slightly lower readmission rate at 30 days, but no change in the ED revisit rate. So there was a little bit higher readmissions, but the ED revisit rate was unchanged. In terms of mortality, this is what's really weird. There was an increased risk of mortality on those crowded days compared with non-crowded days. The effects were very different depending on whether the patient was an elective admission or an unscheduled admission. The longer length of stay effect was driven by elective admissions. So that is that the patients with elective admissions waited longer to be discharged on days where it was crowded, while the higher mortality was concentrated in patients with unscheduled admissions, so people who had come through the ED. It's quite a lot to digest. And I don't think that any, I mean, I spent a lot of time and there's a lot more in this paper trying to chew through this and it's, it's tough. And some of it, frankly, is hard to fathom. Why would crowding on any given day be associated with a higher risk of death? It's, it's tough. Are nurses and doctors too busy to resuscitate patients? Are they more likely to say, you know what? We're really crowded. We need to make the bed. We're going to have a family meeting in two days. Let's have it today and pull the plug. I, I don't know. Do you think it's possible that it's somehow related to medical error? Like they're just, you know, when the system gets overwhelmed, you you know, you make a mistake, like yeah. actual like wrong order on wrong patient or something. I'm trying to think, you know? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I, you know, all of that's a reasonable hypothesis. That's not explored at all in this paper. The other one is like, why would readmissions be lower when it's crowded? right? Like it's crowded. Why would that happen? That's just, it just feels odd to me. Also, to be clear, the effect sizes are pretty small, but this might be due to the fact that they only looked at crowding on the day of discharge. And I suspect that the effects of a crowded ED sort of accumulate over time. So I think it would be a stronger or more maybe just different methodology that might be interesting to look at, to look at like how crowded was it during a given patient's overall length of stay? Were they in the hospital for five super crowded days versus someone who was in the hospital for only one crowded day. And I could see that that accumulation would result in a lot of, you know, problems over time because of like what you said, you know, we just don't, we can't get CTs done. We can't do this. We can't get you to the OR to do your procedures because they're inundated with other things. But that's just, you know, a methodology for a different day. Yeah. And this is, so this paper is really focused on the inpatient side of things. This, I guess there's not much you can take from it telling an ED provider like how to, how to alter their practice That's on correct. days when, you know, the house is full and there's right. just nowhere to put the patients. But is there something interesting here about sort of from the top down, like something an administrator could look at and say like, hey, I'm learning something here. Maybe this is how we can operate better in these overcrowded conditions. And then that would indirectly impact our ability well, I think that that's entirely the point of this paper is to, you know, and again. But can, know, but was there anything? Well, well, there wasn't a single thing. But I think that their goal up front was to sort of highlight how what's going on in the ED has important effects on what's going on in the inpatient. Because I think too often, and I think, you know, all of us out there in the trenches feel like our administrators are not helping us. Now, that might not be true. That might just be our perspective. But I think there is a disconnect between the inpatient side and the ED side, and they're happy enough to sort of let things back up in the ED side. And if so, oh, it's crowded down there. Well, you know, that's, that's an ED problem. But the point here is to highlight that, no, the crowding in the ED has impact on the patients who are already admitted. So if you care about that, if that's, you know, reducing length of stay and stuff, you need to recognize that. And therefore, hospital leadership in all of its various forms should be tuned in to ED crowding because it has impacts that's much broader than just the person who's, you know, sitting in the waiting room with a, you know, a broken arm for an extra couple of hours. Who never gets seen. Yeah. 
edit his commentary. This is a huge study examining the relationship between ED crowding and patient outcomes. Findings suggest that ED crowding has a small but measurable effect on a variety of patient outcomes, including inpatient length of stay and inpatient mortality, which seemingly should motivate hospital leadership to help relieve this problem. Clinical practice. Abstract number three. Serious bacterial infections in young febrile infants with positive UA results. This is by Mahajan et al. from Pediatrics. So there are several guidelines out there that exist to help us navigate the workup of the febrile infant, you know, particularly in that like less than 60 days category. But observational data has shown us that when we actually look, there's quite a bit of practice variation about how we treat these patients and whether we sort of follow guidelines or go rogue, particularly when it comes to performing an LP. Now, the decision to perform more invasive testing like an LP might get even more complicated in your brain if some of the initial not-so-invasive testing yields a positive result, right? And what they're asking here is kind of like, should that impact our decision-making? And I know there's a few things probably popping into every listener's mind. The respiratory panel Mm -hmm. is one. They don't look at that here. The UA is the other. That's the focus of this paper. Although the prevalence of invasive bacterial infections bacteremia, and bacterial meningitis, among febrile infants is low, there's very little data out there on the precise risk of having one of these invasive infections in febrile infants who have a UTI. These authors are from the PECARN group. So you know this paper is going to be good. And they conduct- you know it's going to be big. (laughs) Yeah, it is big and it is very good. They conduct a secondary analysis of a large prospective observational study from 26 EDs to identify serious bacterial infections in febrile infants less than or equal to 60 days who also had at least a blood culture obtained. They enrolled almost 7,500 febrile infants in the parent trial after excluding those patients with significant comorbidities, patients already on antibiotics, and those with critical illness. So we're talking about sort of a well-appearing 60-day-old here. They provide data on just over 7,000 patients in this study. Of these, it's actually close to 7,200 patients, about 1,100, 15% had a positive UA. In terms of thinking about the need for blood cultures, the risk of bacteremia was higher in those with a positive UA, 5.8% versus 1.1%. That shouldn't be incredibly surprising. In terms of thinking about the need for an LP, there was no difference in the prevalence of bacterial meningitis in infants less than or equal to 28 days of age comparing those with a positive versus a negative UA result, about 1% in both groups. However, Among the 700 infants aged 29 to 60 days with a positive UA result, there were no cases of bacterial meningitis in comparison to 9 out of the about 4,000 with negative UA results, so a rate there of 0.2%. They also use this opportunity to further validate their PCARN fever guidelines and found no cases of bacteremia and or bacterial meningitis in the about 158 infants less than or equal to 60 days of age with an ANC 
less than four and a procalcitonin less than 0.5. So there are here, only 150 kids in that category, though? That's correct. Out of 7,000? So this is, you know, and they use their rounded numbers here, sure. too, because that that is one of the things people talk about with this peak fee. Are you really supposed to use the four, point, three, four, seven, seven, four, whatever? There's a few papers. We actually haven't covered one on EMA yet, looking at using the rounded numbers like 5, instead, 000. and it seems to be largely okay. Specificity goes down a little bit. The data collection methodology from the parent study is excellent, as is the norm with most of these PCARN initiatives, but limitations include a non-consecutive sampling strategy and the overall low prevalence of invasive bacterial infections, even in this really large cohort, which impacts the power and strength of their conclusions just a little bit. But generally speaking, if I'm to sum this all up, I think they're making a really strong argument here that a patient, a febrile infant, age 29 to 60 days, who ends up having a positive UA, does not need an LP. Yeah, I think that's right. And we've seen some other papers from that uh, Barcelona group that's done somewhat similar kinds of ideas here, because you know that, that's, it's a problem, right? You do this thing and you're trying to avoid the LP, you find the source. <laughs> and it's like, do I really need to do all this stuff? The question that some people would pose is, well, what do you do then? You find you have a six-week-old it's got a positive UA. I'm going to defer. They look well. I believe it's a UA. It doesn't look like meningitis. You know, they're not sick and all that kind of stuff. What do you do? Do you send them home? Is that a thing? And there, there are some people that have suggested you can send folks home. So yeah, the group from, the group from most Spain people is kind of suggesting yeah. that. Here, they don't go into that specifically, but, you know, reading some other things on this topic, it seems like, you know, like Dr. Mahajan has mm-hmm. actually put out some podcast, mm-hmm. you know, his opinion on what to do with this paper. Seems like they're still saying get all the blood work, yeah, including okay. the blood cultures, yeah, and then you're probably still going to end up admitting observing. Yeah, I think these that's right. But there is this sort of like general trend. We're, we're towards, moving. We're yeah. moving in the right direction. But at least now there seems to be a big body of evidence building saying the LP is not necessary, and I'm going to take that. Editor's commentary. In this secondary analysis of prospectively collected data from the PCARN group. The authors suggest that UA findings should not impact the workup of febrile infants less than or equal to 28 days. Basically, they all still need a full court press. However, among well-appearing febrile infants aged 29 to 60 days with a positive UA, the authors found no cases of bacterial meningitis and suggest that if you diagnose a UTI in this age, you can actually forego the LP. They do still recommend blood testing and cultures with inflammatory markers for all febrile infants. Abstract number four, temperature control after in-hospital cardiac arrest, a randomized clinical trial. This is by Wolfram et al., and it's in circulation. So this article attempts to put the final nail in the therapeutic hypothermia coffin. By now, if you're a longtime listener, you know that therapeutic hypothermia gained prominence on the strength of two small, highly biased RCTs that were published in the early 2000s that have since been refuted by at least two large, well-performed trials over the past several years, which have shown equal or better outcomes with targeted normothermia as opposed to hypothermia or therapeutic hypothermia. The authors of this paper note that all of the previous trials focused on out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and there was still some uncertainty as to whether that extrapolates to in-hospital cardiac arrest, which is relevant to emergency medicine because when people arrest in the ED, 
having not arrested prior to the ED, that's considered an in-hospital cardiac arrest. Or, you know, you also may be called to go up to a code or something like that, you know, on the code blue team. And then half the may ask if you're the only doc, there's no ICU doc in the middle of the night. Are you supposed to start therapeutic hypothermia or not? Absolutely great point. And, you know, I don't do that anymore, but I did for many years. And uh, yeah, absolutely excellent point. So does this extrapolate to in-hospital cardiac arrest? And the short answer is it does. All right. So this study looks at that. It randomized 249 adult patients who were resuscitated following an in-hospital cardiac arrest and remained comatose at least 45 minutes after the arrest. Patients who had initial out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and then subsequent re-arrest in the hospital were excluded because that's just presumed to be, you know, some whatever. They belong in the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest OCA sort of category. The control group had no specific target temperature. But the authors state that they strongly encouraged providers to keep the patients afebrile, but they didn't have a protocol to do it. The intervention group was cooled to 32 to 34 degrees Celsius for 24 hours, then slowly rewarmed a protocol that roughly looks like many of the other ones that we've seen in the literature over time. The providers were not blinded, of course, because you know they're cold and hooked up to all these machines. But the assessors of the outcomes were. So that's a a strength. The study was performed at 11 hospitals. The primary outcome was all cause mortality at 180 days. And the most important secondary outcome was favorable neurologic outcome at 180 days. There were a variety of other secondary points. One thing that's really odd about this study is that it took place, enrollment took place between 2007 and 2014. And it's 2022, and this is a really big trial, right? And they actually, in the very last paragraph of the discussion, they sort of say, uh, things were delayed because of funding issues. I'm like, you had all the data in 2014? It took you eight years to get it? It's just kind of an you know, oddball thing. Data is expensive. You may not realize that. <laughs> they, were, they were having some pre-pandemic lulls in production, uh, you know, whatever. Anyway, it is a little bit weird. Still. About 20% of the arrests in the study population occurred in the ED, with the rest occurring all over the hospital wards and ICUs. The mean age was 72, and downtimes were very short. Like 95% of the patients had a downtime of less than five minutes before CPR was initiated, which, you know, is probably what you'd expect for an in-hospital cardiac arrest. Of course, that's also a good prognostic indicator. The majority of the patients had unfavorable initial rhythms, right? The large majority having asystole or PEA and only a fraction, like about 25%, having VF or VT. The study was stopped early for futility. Six-month mortality was 73% in the hypothermia group and 71% in the control group, not significant. The proportion with good neurologic outcomes at 180 days was 23% in the hypothermia group and 24% in the control group. Secondary outcomes, including complications, were similar between the two groups. The only thing that was substantially different between the two groups was their average temperatures. The hypothermic group averaged a core temp of 33 at 10 to 18 hours, while the control group was right at 37. So they, you know, going back to what you said earlier, and one of the important things to look at at these kind of trials is, did they actually do the intervention? And they did. They dropped the temperature, and it just didn't result in any differences in outcomes. Somewhat interestingly, The authors embark on a very long discussion of why this trial may have been biased against finding in favor of hypothermia. 
they say that the downtimes were too short. That you know the theory of hypothermia should only be active when the downtimes are longer because of reperfusion injuries and you know whatever a bunch of physiologic mumbo jumbo that is not empirically validated. They say that the sample size was smaller than they you know wanted, but that's because it was stopped early for futility. I mean, a whole bunch of stuff. It's like they're they're making all these apologies for it, but it all falls flat. The bottom line is that the data just do not support therapeutic hypothermia in this patient population, just as it hasn't supported therapeutic hypothermia for you know better part of a decade in the out of hospital cardiac arrest population. Editor's commentary. This is a well done randomized controlled trial of comatose patients with in hospital cardiac arrest. As with previous trials of comatose out-of-hospital cardiac arrest survivors, this trial shows no mortality or neurologic benefit to therapeutic hypothermia compared with routine care. Abstract number five, implementation and facilitation of post-resuscitation debriefing, a comparative crossover study of two post-resuscitation debriefing frameworks by CAM et al. in BMC Emergency Medicine. So post-resuscitation debriefing after a difficult case, like those with a cardiac arrest or resuscitation or an unexpected outcome, has been shown to improve team well-being, assist in learning, and provide an opportunity to identify gaps in care to prevent this from happening in the next patient and decreases the risk of burnout. The use of a post-resuscitation debrief is recommended by most national and international resuscitation society guidelines, but there are several standardized tools out there that can be used as a framework for a facilitated discussion, and there's not much data comparing the value of one over another using real patients in an ED setting. And that's basically what they do here. They compare two of the tools across a 12-month prospective crossover design broken up into six eight-week-long blocks. So basically, they did one for eight weeks, then crossed to the other for eight weeks, then crossed back to the other for eight weeks. You can do the math. Spread out across the ED, the PICU, the NICU, and via the Code Blue team at a children's hospital. They were comparing the debriefing in situ and situ conversation after emergent resuscitation now, the DISCERN tool, which I think is probably one of the more popular ones, and I feel like we've covered discern on EMA before, with the postcode pause, or the PCP. Discern is designed to target performance improvement, so looking at those sort of QI issues, while PCP is designed to focus more on emotional well-being and some of the feelings that the team members may have after the event. After an initial 12-week-long training on both of the two debrief tools with education, practice periods, they then started alternating in these eight-week blocks with discussions triggered by an intubation, a resuscitation, any event deemed to be serious with an unanticipated patient outcome, or by a request of the team member, one of the team members saying, hey, I think this would be a good time to do a debrief. They did a total of 55 debriefs with the DISCERN and 59 debriefs with the PCP over the 12-month period, with most of them 60% occurring in the ED. On average, about five people participated in each debrief, and they took about 14 minutes to complete. The PCP debriefs were a little bit longer at 18 minutes 
versus 11 minutes for discern. So that's a pretty that's good a amount long, of time. That's a long break. Yeah. If you, you know, if you're going to do it in the middle of a busy ED. Mm-hmm. As likely expected by most of you who are sort of either know these tools or listening to my one second introduction on them, more participants felt that the PCP provided emotional support than the discern did at a rate of 65% participants saying they felt that it provided emotional support versus 50% in the discern. They also found the PCP was perceived to more strongly support clinical education at 61% versus 56%. There were no perceived differences in ease of use or identified improvement opportunities. They provide lots of quotes in this paper. This is a pretty rich paper and themes from the qualitative analysis that they did. I don't want to go into a lot of details, but generally it showed all the participants liked the process. They liked having the debrief, regardless of which one it was, and generally felt it to be useful, both on an emotional level, like that was very stressful, that was very, like, I don't want to take that case home with me too much, and on a practice improvement level. It felt like because of it, they were identified things they could fix moving forward. The authors, I think, should be commended for starting this study, this crossover trial, at a site that had no formal post-resuscitation debrief process before this. It wasn't like they already had kind of focused on this and said, hey, we should be doing this routine. They had like never done it before and were like, you know what? Let's do it in a randomized trial or a crossover trial. That's pretty cool. They don't suggest that their findings should be generalized out to all EDs, but rather sort of the overall tenor of the discussion section is that these tools need to be tested locally right? Like what works for them? They're at a pediatric, a children's hospital, may not work for you. They're not saying that one is better than another. They're just saying, hey, they're kind of different. You know, there are lots of ones out there. You should check one out. It's good to have a framework for these post-resuscitation debriefs. And that overall satisfaction of initiating them is likely going to be pretty high. Just have to balance that against the time that it takes to actually do them. And I think that's the focus on your local solution. Yeah. I think that, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that these debriefs are really important and we don't do them. You know, I mean, we don't even do them where we are most of the time, you know, and we're at a training institution where we should know better. And part of the reason I think we don't do them is that it's a skill. You know, it's a skill that I wasn't trained in and I don't have the skill set, you know, in my little toolbox. I'm looking for, how do you do a debrief? And, it, you know, I'm trying to ad hoc it, like what I, Mike Menchin thinks is important or whatever. And it, it's like quite, disparate from what other people expected. And I'm like, no, this is a totally expected outcome. I wouldn't even call one. You know, I'm like, of course that's what happened. And so I think that having a structure, like you said, whether it's this PCP or the discern or some other thing, or even just, you know, some cue questions or something like that to facilitate that conversation is really, you know, what we need in the first step. And that's probably what they're seeing here more than anything else, which, which is great, which is really great. Yeah. If you're going to do these on your own, the Mike Minchin style, they're probably going to be a little messed up. You yeah, know, because I don't know like what I'm you doing. Said, you're winging it. Yeah, I, I'm not an expert in how to do this. And it's, I think it's commendable to try. Absolutely. But if you look at these, and you could pull these up oh. online, and they have some set questions, the framework of what to use. When I read them, I was kind of like, oh, even though I'm not going to use the discern next time, it got my brain yeah. working in what the important topics are that should be covered. In these right. Things. It's just giving you some skills to have this conversation, it's the framework. which needs a different skill set than your usual talking to patients conversation yeah. you know, that yeah. you do have skills. Really in. good point. Editor's commentary. 
There is no doubt that there is immense value to a debrief after an emotionally or physically trying case in the ED. In this interesting crossover study, the authors evaluated two different post-resuscitation debrief tools and found some subtle differences between the two, but overall high value for both. If you want to start this process at your hospital or in your own practice, there are lots of tools to choose from, so check out a few and don't be afraid to develop your own local solution to best fit your needs like the authors of the Take Stock tool did, which we covered in EMA in 2021. Abstract number six, Influence of Age on the Diagnosis of Myocardial Infarction. This is by Lowry et al., and it is in circulation. So this is a cool little study, maybe not so little, but from my favorite acronymed, if that's a word, investigative group, the High Stakes Investigators. And the reason I love the High Stakes Investigator is because the acronym spells out S-T-E-A-C-S. So it kind of looks like steak, like a, uh, not like the stakes are high, but like that's, I would like my steak medium rare, which I just find amusing every time I see it. And I'm reminded of, remember that old Rosanna, Rosanna Dana skit from Saturday Night Live where she goes on and on about about how, um, how, what a bad, I think, President Carter Ford was because he wants to make Puerto Rico a steak. And then someone has to correct her and say, state. Do you remember that skit? It's unusual that I don't remember an old SNL and skit, but I don't at all. It's so classic because they're like, he wants to make him a state, not a steak. Oh, that's very different. Never mind. I don't even remember them making fun of Carter Los Ford that they used to, you know, pick on Carter, but I guess that was the Chevy Chase sort of physical yeah. comedy. That was Ford, yeah, yeah. But then the famously that's she says, Oh, never mind. She gives you know, like it's the never mind is the punchline of that thing. It's just uh, anyway, whatever. High stakes investigators. So high sensitivity tropes are replacing conventional troponin assays in labs everywhere near you. We're about to make this transition at LAC USC. Many of you out there have probably already made this transition. Those of you who have are used to this idea that there's a gender-specific cutoff for what constitutes positive, okay? Negative is below the detection limit, and there's also this intermediate zone. Here, they're focusing on what constitutes positive, like this is indicative of myocardial injury, infarction, etc. The reference limit is usually the 99th percentile of gender-matched healthy adult population. And for men, that value is typically 34 nanograms per liter. And for women, it's 16 nanograms per liter. We all know that the value as organized generates false positives. By definition, it's designed to generate 1% false positives, right? Because it's at the 99th percentile of healthy people. But in ED populations, it's been shown that that false positive rate is much higher because those patients have a variety of medical conditions that elevate troponin that is not related to an acute MI. What about age? What about older adults? Well, since they have higher comorbidities, et cetera, it's become apparent in the literature that that 99th percentile is an extremely conservative threshold in that population and likely to result in even more false positives. So perhaps an age-adjusted threshold should be considered you know, hey, we got it for D-dimer, so you got to yeah, apply why it. Why is D-dimer got to have the monopoly exactly. on this age-adjusted age adjustment? Thing. I yeah. want to do it for white counts, for yeah. everything. <laughs> so I love it, white counts. Right? <laughs> that makes sense if you don't think about Certainly it. Certainly could adjust that creatinine. <laughs> so the purpose of this study was to quantify it, specifically to compare the diagnostic characteristics of high-sensitivity proponents 
and age-adjusted high-sensitivity proponents for people that like are less than 50, which they call young. Hey, hey, hey. we're just squeezing in there. <laughs> yeah, one more year. Yeah, three um, more for me. <laughs> so between people who are less than 50, 50 to 74, and then over 75, which they call old, which I find, you know, I'm, probably, I'm sure there's somebody out there who's deeply offended by that. Anyway. This is a secondary analysis of this high-stakes studies that came out of Scotland a few years back when high-sensitivity troponins were being introduced in Europe. In the parent study, they looked at 46,000 consecutive ED visits for chest pain that presented to 10 hospitals in Scotland. STEMIs were excluded because the troponin value really doesn't have a role in diagnosis in those cases. All of the cases had an adjudication by unblinded assessors to determine what type of MI, if any, they suffered. Overall, 5,000 people had some form of MI, and this is a look at that data that you know, came out of that uh, study. The initial high-sensitivity troponin in isolation using the sex-specific cutoff was about 80% sensitive across the three age categories. So less than 50, 50 to 74, and greater 74, about 80% sensitive. However, the specificity was much lower with advancing age. For patients less than 50, the specificity of a positive high-sensitivity trope was 98%. So if it's 34 or greater, it was 98% specific for an MI, indicating, you know, you, you got the real deal. This dropped pretty precipitously. It was only 80% specific for patients 50 to 74. And for people over 74, it was even lower. For people 90 years and over, the specificity went down to 50%, coin flippy. Taken altogether, the positive predictive value fell to less than 50% for patients over 75 years old. So, not good. The authors then examined the test characteristics of this high-sensitivity troponin if they used an age-adjusted threshold. They're like, well, that's no good. That specificity is no good. Effectively, what that means is, you know, they looked at healthy controls and figured out what the 99th percentile was, etc. Effectively, that means that they raised the number from 34 to something else. They don't actually tell us what that number is, but for people, you know, over 50 to 74 and for people over 74 and et cetera. And as one ex would expect, the specificity increased by raising that threshold. It increased from 81 to 91%, roughly in that sort of middle group. However, the sensitivity fell off the face of the earth. It went from 80% sensitive down to 55% sensitive for patients over 70. So the author's I think correctly conclude that using an age-adjusted threshold comes at too high of a cost in terms of sensitivity, and therefore it's not warranted based on these findings. You look like you want to say something. No, no, mm, I'm just yeah. thinking that you know it's a bummer. These uh, high sensitivity tropes—they sound like fun. Yeah, <laughs> That's just so, yeah. What I'm thinking. I don't want to get too far in the weeds with this paper, but there is one thing I did want to note because I said that the overall sensitivity for the high sensitivity trope was 80 percent. Which is actually quite low. We normally think of like, whoa, you missed 20% of MIs. I just want to emphasize that that's not because this is a lousy study. That's because they said that the sensitivity for a positive, it had to be over 34, right? A lot of times it's intermediate and rising, and you do a delta and all that stuff to adjudicate, you know, the, these sort of values. So that's why the sensitivity looks a little bit lower than we're used to seeing. And, and I think that that's okay. But the, the key point that if you're going to raise that bar, you're going to drop sensitivity to an unacceptably low level. Editor's commentary. 
This study highlights the lack of specificity of high-sensitivity cardiac troponins as patient age increases. This declining specificity can be mitigated by using a higher threshold for positivity, but this comes at too great a cost in terms of sensitivity for detecting myocardial infarction. Clinicians will simply need to understand that the specificity of using the usual sex-specific cutoff is roughly 80% for patients over 74 and falls further to about 60% by age 90. Abstract number seven, defining the learning curve for endotracheal intubation in the ED by Lee et al. from Scientific Reports. And we've, we've, had pay, we've had a couple of studies in scientific reports. Yeah, this, one, this one's kind of a funky one, actually. It's interesting. It probably will you know, generate a little bit of talk, I think, particularly if you're a program director <laughs> somewhere. So airway management is one of the you know, fundamental, critical, life-saving things that we are supposed to be incredibly good at as emergency medicine physicians. I'm, I'm taking notes. Yeah. The most common way, obviously, to secure an airway is endotracheal intubation which, as the authors kind of say in this paper, the way they describe it, I like the way they describe it. They say this is a psychomotor skill. You know, you really got to have your head in the right place and know sort of the anatomy and where to put the blade and do all that stuff because it can be stressful and that can impact your ability to perform this procedure. The way you get good at it is through practice. Practice makes perfect, right? Mm -hmm. Reps, exactly. And that's also the way you maintain procedural proficiency. You got to keep doing this. It's not, not like a bike. You know, you have to do airways every once in a while to stay good at it. But that's, how much, that's concerning for me. <laughs> yeah. How much practice is enough? That's what they're really asking here. The ACGME requires EM residents here in the United States to perform at least 35 intubations during their training to be considered proficient. And these authors are saying, is that right? This is a study from a single center in South Korea, where the authors provide an interesting description of their emergency medical training among their residents and use internal data to attempt to estimate the number of intubations that would be required for a novice trainee to progress their skills to the point where they have a first attempt success rate of 85%. Per the authors, I found this part really fascinating. They have, this is not as part of the study, they have detailed data from every single intubation attempted by a resident recorded by an observer in real time. So every time a resident goes, there's somebody there who's recording some critical piece of information like, you know, the the first pass success being one of them here. And they had no missed cases over a seven-year study period ending in 2021. Every tube they got. Data, I like better than near data. Way better. <laughs> you know, yeah. they, they require like 90% or something yeah. for that one. This is 100% over seven years. An intubation attempt was defined as insertion of the laryngoscope blade into the mouth, regardless of the number of sort of, t- you take the tube out and put it back in. It was the blade. One blade, one attempt. Okay. They present data on just under 2,000 patients with a mean age of 67 years and medical indications as opposed to sort of a traumatic indication was the reason for the intubation in almost all the cases, over 90%. Then they generated really complicated, very well done, statistical linear mixed models with a random intercept to estimate the probability of first attempt success plotted against the number of intubation attempts by that intubator by the person doing the procedure. 
they found at least 119 intubations were required to achieve a first attempt success probability of more than 85%. In addition, at least 66 and 189 cumulative intubation cases were required to achieve first attempt success probabilities of 80% and 90% respectively. So at about 60, 80% is what they're saying. At the 120 mark, you get to 85. And then by you know 190, you're at the 90%. How mark. many people could even even could have had that number? Right. Doesn't so that, but that's the critical <laughs> question here. What does this mean? Right? Are we all supposed to go back to residency now? Are people who just graduated, like, uh-oh, I haven't done 190 intubations. Does this number ring true for anybody? I think there's a few things to consider here, with the first one being that these are predicted probabilities of success. Yeah, right? This has to do with their, their model. This yeah. has to do with the model. Most of the trainees actually performed closer to like 70 or 80. There was no trainee who even performed yeah, 200 yeah. cases. So this is right? just what the model projects out, which always dangerous, extrapolating versus interpolating. Mm, that's exactly yeah. right. So this is, this is probably just because of the model, right? We have no way of knowing if the learning curve they generate is accurate or if it projects out at the same rate as what they actually But I guess it does mean that at 80 or whatever, you're not at 80. (laughs) Yeah, at 80, you're not at 80. But I think the second thing to consider is there's lots of different ways to define airway proficiency. Sure. Right. And first attempt success is probably the most strict of all of them. Yeah, it's you know, a very conservative idea. Very conservative, right? Because if you have to, you know, adjust the blade, go to a VL and you still get it with no patient complications, is that really a failure? I mean, that is what we're supposed to do is go through an airway algorithm. But as long as you get the airway, I think with no harm to the patient, I would call that a success. So I yeah. think this is, you know, this is a really, really strict, very conservative definition they're using, which I think is what makes the number so high. And like, yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. In fairness to the authors, though, they didn't invent that, right? Like a lot of the near registry data that we see, a lot of airway stuff talks about first pass success rate as their marker of, you know, successful sort of intubation when you're, when you're looking at different techniques, when you're looking at different drugs, et cetera. So they're following along in that. And usually we let, we let that kind of slide, but this in this time we're being more critical of it, which yeah. I think we should be on all times. I think we're being <laughs> critical because the message is different, right? These authors say the same thing. They're like, hey, it's been shown that with more attempts, there's more patient harm, like generally speaking. And so mm-hmm. if you're comparing you know, intubation technique against A against B, it makes sense to me to say like, well, let's do the one that gets the best outcome. But then they use the word proficiency, mm-hmm. which I think, I, I just don't love it. Like, I understand. That, that is where the disconnect is, is, you know, like, that doesn't, I think proficiency in my mean means you get the airway without any right. harm to the patient. And then maybe first pass success is a little bit poorer yeah, I way think, of I measuring mean, I, that. I, you know, I didn't, I read this abstract, but I didn't read the whole paper. So yeah, I agree with you. The proficiency thing is like a minimum, you know, proficiency as I see it is a sort of a minimum standard to graduate. You know, and I'd say that, yeah, you have to, you know, if you get it 95% of the time or more, no matter how much you have to muck around, I'm good with that. You know, optimal, maybe that's a better term. That, like that would be a better term. It's just you know? the term. Yeah, of course. And, I, and that actually doesn't surprise me that you're not optimized through residency, that it takes another five years to, you know, get those weird cases where you learn the little tricks about how to, you know, maneuver the shoulders, the towel rolls, the head motions and stuff like that to get that level a little higher. So 
you know, I, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's interesting. And it just, to me, it does highlight that, you know, although you're right, there's a lot of methodologic issues, you know, you're probably still on a learning curve for several yeah, years after that, training. I think they could have, I think your summary just now is pretty nice, or at least your points on it, but they just presented it in my mind poorly. Too strongly. Like they, they basically say, I just didn't want to get into it. But they say, hey, this is, should be the new standard. ACGME should be that looking was... at this and stuff. Like, so yeah, they go instead of taking an approach that says kind of what you say, which is, you know, hey, you know, we, we continue to get better and that probably peaks a few years after residency. And that's good that we're yeah. still learning and get I think they could have tailored the discussion differently and I would have done it differently too. But, you know, hey, it we, is what it is. It is what it is. And we can say it. You yeah. continue to get better for a few years and you're probably at your best five years out. Yeah. And that makes sense. Editor's commentary. In this interesting study from South Korea, where they have detailed information on every intubation performed by an emergency medicine resident, the authors establish a learning curve and predict that a trainee would have to perform about 120 intubations to be proficient in the skill. Before you all drop what you're doing and restart your residency programs, keep in mind that this is a predicted number and their definition of proficiency is really overly strict. Just because you have to adjust the blade and still get the airway doesn't mean you're not proficient in intubation or that you had a failed airway. Abstract number eight, effect of high-flow nasal cannula oxygen versus standard oxygen therapy on mortality in patients with respiratory failure due to COVID-19, the SOHO COVID randomized clinical trial. I just realized. It's a really long title. This is by Frat et al. It's in JAMA. So COVID-19 really accelerated the research on hypoxemic respiratory failure and strategies to reduce intubation and mortality. A couple strategies that previously were basically on the fringe, but quickly became mainstream included prone positioning and high-flow nasal cannula. We covered a study recently that showed somewhat convincingly that prone positioning had no meaningful effect on mortality. But what about high-flow nasal cannula? This was a multi-site French randomized controlled trial that looked at high-flow nasal cannula versus face mask for COVID patients with respiratory failure, and it occurred between January and December of 2021, so after the discovery of steroids as a treatment for COVID. Subjects were eligible for inclusion if they had COVID-19, and they had this PaO2 to FiO2 ratio that was less than 200 while breathing 10 liters of oxygen for at least 15 minutes. So I assume that nobody knows what that means. So I know that it probably means they have some level of respiratory distress and 10 liters is not enough. Yeah. So this is like a ratio I've seen actually a couple of times in the literature, but I've never actually bothered to try to calculate it. So I did this time just to put a little color around this thing. Practically, it means that if one is on 10 liters of uh, per minute of face mask, that corresponds to an FiO2 of 50%. And there's a variety of formulas that will get you to that 50%. The highest PaO2 a subject could have would be 100 then to generate this ratio of less than 200, right? So if you're on 50% FiO2 and your PaO2 is less than 100, you'd be eligible to be enrolled in this study. And that's, that's a pretty low PaO2 if you're on 50% oxygen. So overall, this is telling us that the patients are pretty sick. You know, they have a pretty significant respiratory or oxygen requirement. 
if the patients were already showing signs of ventilatory failure, like a PCO2 of um, you know, greater than 45 or something like that, they were excluded, as were patients that had chronic lung disease because they couldn't figure out what the hell was going on with their PAO2s and all that kind of stuff. The intervention group got high flow oxygen, at least 50 liters per minute of the humidified air with oxygen levels varied to keep the SATs 92 to 96%. The standard oxygen therapy group got greater than or equal to 10 liters per minute of face max oxygen to keep SATs in that same 92 to 96% range. The authors had a defined set of indications for intubation to minimize the effect of the study not being blinded. Interestingly, it does not appear that they allowed for any crossover. So more specifically, they didn't allow people to go from face mask to high flow nasal cannula. I'm not 100% sure that's true, but that's what it looks like in the paper. The primary outcome was death at 28 days. Secondary outcomes were a whole host of them, but included the need for intubation, ventilator-free days, ICU mortality, and some stuff like that. They enrolled 811 subjects. That's a really big study of people with COVID respiratory failure. The mean age was 61. Almost all of them got steroids and relatively few had serious comorbidities because those guys were siphoned off in the exclusion process. That mean PaO2, FiO2 ratio was 130. And what that corresponds to is a PaO2 of 65 on 10 liters of face mass. That means you're hovering right around like probably a 90% sat on 10 liters. That's a pretty sick cohort. So what'd they find? In terms of the primary outcome, mortality at 28 days, there was absolutely no difference between the two groups, 10% mortality in high flow, 11% in the standard therapy group. Same was true for in-hospital mortality, which was same, same across the groups. However, intubation, which was the secondary outcome, was different. 53% of the standard therapy group, so the face mask nasal cannula, I'm sorry, face mask group was intubated versus only 45% of the high flow group which was generated a p-value of less than 0.04, an absolute difference of 8% and a number needed to treat of 12. Median ventilator-free days trended to favor the high flow group by about two days, but for some reason that wasn't statistically significant. It was like p-value 0.07 or something like that. So this is really quite interesting. And I don't think it's entirely surprising. I personally would have strongly doubted that you could save lives with high flow nasal cannula. Right? It's just like, what's the mechanism for that? It doesn't make a lot of sense. For me, the only mechanism I can really even postulate is that you could stave off so many intubations that you could avoid some of the iatrogenic or nosocomial complications that ventilators create. But that's like, you'd have to you know, block off a ton of intubations. So I think that the possibility of like avoiding intubations was actually the more likely outcome to begin with. And probably should have been their primary outcome if they were really, you know, getting into it, you know, because that's that's what you're trying to do with high flow nasal cannula. But that wasn't what they did, and so it creates this little bit of ambiguity where it failed on the primary outcome, but was kind of successful on the secondary outcome. The major criticism of the study is that it's open label, and the providers may have had a lower threshold to intubate somebody failing face mask as compared to someone who is failing high flow, and that could have happened for a whole host of reasons, right? Maybe on face mask, people look weirder. They get the stuff, you know, the, the face mask oxygen just makes you look sicker or whatever it is, or they were aware of the study purpose. So they were willing to give the high flow folks a little bit longer to turn around than the face mask people. And then some of them did. As I noted earlier, the authors attempted to minimize this risk 
by having explicit criteria that were indications for intubation. And they report that no one was intubated without one of those explicit criteria. But one of the conditions was severe respiratory failure, which could be defined, according to their list, as worsening respiratory muscle fatigue, which is clearly very subjective. So they don't break it down and show like if that was the driver of the difference or not. And I'm not sure that, you know, what, I'm not sure what I would do with that information anyway, but it's, it's something to note that there's still some subjectivity into that assessment, which, you know, introduces some potential bias into the findings. Still, I do think that this is in line with most of the data we're seeing on high flow for a variety of conditions, including like where we saw most of the literature earlier in like pediatric bronchiolitis and stuff like that, which is it tends to show that it staves off a few intubations on the margin. Of course, in practice, this isn't an either or scenario, right? You can start with nasal cannula, you can progress to face mask, then you can progress to high flow if that doesn't seem to be working and land on intubation if none of that works. And there's nothing in here that says you could do that strategy. What is less clear is if you pay a penalty for that approach, right? The sequential nasal cannula to face mask to high flow. Is it that if you start by face mask, you know, you miss a window where high flow might have made the difference. And that's just, we just don't know here because they didn't study that. They studied face mask or, and based on this study, I would say if you really have the choice between face mask or it looks like high flow is, a, a, you know, maybe a little bit better option, but it's marginal. Editor's commentary. Oxygen by high flow nasal cannula seems to result in a lower intubation rate than oxygen by face mask for patients with severe COVID-19 respiratory failure. This intubation sparing effect does not translate to an improvement in all-cause mortality. Abstract number nine, high flow nasal cannula in bronchiolitis at a pediatric ED trends and outcomes by Lipshaw et al. from hospital pediatrics. So this is the second of the duo of papers this month on high flow nasal cannula. This one is a little bit older. It's about a year old, actually, uh, sent to us by Dr. Schoenberger, I believe, to cover, but definitely seems relevant because we're sitting in the middle of like an RSV nightmare right now. Most the other pandemic. As, yeah, as we're uh, recording this thing. So I think there's some interest in high-flow nasal cannula in pediatric patients, and we didn't cover this one when it first came out. Bronchiolitis is the leading cause of ED visits and hospitalizations for kids less than two years of age in the United States. And providers are using various treatments for kids with bronchiolitis in isolation and in combination with things like antibiotics, even though almost all the time the infection is thought to be viral, steroids, nebulized beta agonist, nebulized epi, hypertonic saline. It's a pretty long list. And none of these things have been found to actually change the course of illness. And there's no high quality evidence for interventions out there other than supportive care. But over the last decade, there's been a dramatic uptick in the use of heated, humidified, high-flow nasal cannula for a variety of indications across the house of medicine, even though more recent large studies and randomized trials have not shown an improvement in most patient-centered outcomes. In this study, the authors perform a single-center retrospective cohort study describing the clinical factors associated with the use of high-flow among kids with bronchiolitis and describe trends and how trends might be associated, trends of use might be associated with clinical outcomes. 
Basically, they took all kids aged 2 to 24 months with an ICD diagnosis of bronchiolitis between 2013 and 2019. They identified just over 11,000 children. Of these, overall, over the study period, 8.1% were started on high flow. Looking at the trend, this number increased from 1.3% at the start of the study period to 17% at the end of the study period. And in the ED specifically, because some of these patients came from different sites in the hospital other than the ED, that number increased from 3% at the start to over a third of cases at 35.6% by the end. Interestingly, less than 30% of kids on high flow were hypoxic at any time point in their visit with a SAT of less than 90% and about three quarters had a SAT less than 95%. In the abstract, they basically state there were no significant changes over time in rates of hospitalization, PICU admission, PICU transfer, after adjusting for clinical severity, seasonality, provider variation, etc. But if you look at the raw numbers, I know you're not supposed to do this, you know, you're supposed to just look at the adjusted things. They're pretty different. The admission rate, 39% versus 47%. PICU admissions, 9.8% at the start of the sample versus 23% at the end. Transfer to the PICU basically doubles from 3 to almost 6%. And all of these things increased in statistically significant ways, which vanished with the adjustments. But the adjustments they made, they're like to do like the confounding of severity and the providers and stuff like that, were a little confused. They looked messy to me. So I'm just, I'm having trouble wrapping my head around it. You know, it definitely looks like on raw numbers, there's a higher utilization of you know, high, like pick you and Mm -hmm. stuff like that at the end of the study period. And that's worth thinking about a little bit. I guess what I'm trying to say is focusing on adjusted values is right if you believe the way that they got there. And I'm just not sure on this one. So I think there's a little bit of ambiguity there. I, I mean, to me, I think, I mean, again, you know, I haven't detailed the methods here, but I'm not surprised by the unadjusted thing. And I, I would guess that that's real. You start using high flow, they put a policy in the hospital. You can't use high flow outside of the PICU. End of story. You know, and you're like, well, the kid's got bronchiolitis. I'm going to use high, high flow. That means the kid has to go to the PICU. Yeah. The, here they said you could use it on the floor, okay. on the ward. They're very specific about that. And yeah. that's like, so it's all, it's all like a little, it's all, I think it's very thought provoking yeah. the paper, like the raw numbers. And I think it warrants a little more look at this topic, actually. I mean, there's other limitations here, right? There's the ICD-based case identification strategy, which we know is, you know, has some problems. There's a retrospective nature of the data collection, which generates potential for confounding that could only be partially accounted for with their adjustments and regression model and stuff here. But there might be a signal. I'm actually not sure. I think we're going to see more papers on this topic looking at the value of high flow. Editor's commentary. In this retrospective single-center study, the authors reported a 13-fold increase over six years in the use of high-flow nasal cannula for kids two months to two years of age without any sign of clinical improvement in clinical outcomes and maybe a suggestion of increased inpatient resource utilization. But their statistical model leaves me questioning. I guess at this point, based on this paper, we could file high-flow nasal cannula with lots of the other therapies for bronchiolitis into the not-going-to-help category, but my gut tells me 
that more research is needed on the topic. Abstract number 10, frequency of serious bacterial infection among febrile sickle cell disease children in the era of the conjugate vaccine, a retrospective study. This is by Alzamore et al., and it's in the International Journal of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine. And it's a really interesting paper on the management of sickle cell disease. And one of the reasons that it's really interesting is because it comes out of the Children Hospital in King Saud Medical City in Saudi Arabia, which I admit I do not typically consider to be a hotbed of sickle cell disease. But I learned that the prevalence of sickle cell trait is about 3% in Saudi Arabians, which is actually quite similar to American blacks. You know, it's kind of interesting. However, and this is also interesting, that's way higher than it is in other Middle Eastern countries. So for some reason, Saudi Arabia has this high population of sickle cell disease and sickle cell trait. So it actually is a, you know, an area where the, this is an you know, endemic problem. At issue here is the idea that children with sickle cell disease are at high risk for encapsulated gram-positive organisms, most notably pneumococcus, causing bacteremia due to their functional asplenia or hyposplenia. Historically, the risk for bacteremia in this cohort of febrile children with sickle cell disease presenting to an ER has been reported to be very high, like well over 5%, like maybe 5-10%. Functionally, this means when you got a child with sickle cell disease and a fever, you pan-cultured them, you gave them ceftriaxone, and you admitted them to the hospital. Plus, minus LP, you know, kind of deal. The authors point out that the modern Prevnar vaccination, or the conjugated pneumococcal vaccination, combined with antibiotic prophylaxis has dramatically reduced the risk of bacteremia in this group of kids and might make the risk low enough to potentially discharge them. The point of the study was to determine the risk of serious bacterial infections in febrile children with sickle disease presenting to this single pediatric hospital and to detail the types of infections they had and how that related to their vaccination status and antibiotic prophylaxis status. The study was a retrospective chart review with almost no explanation of the methods, unfortunately. They ended up with 833 febrile children with sickle cell disease over a five-year period that ended in 2019, so very modern data. The mean age was 3.6 years. So these are really little kids. Of this 833, 30 had serious bacterial infection, which is only 3.6%. And that's actually in line or lower than what we see in other studies of children who are sort of in that three-year-old range. Almost all of the children with serious bacterial infection had received the recommended pneumococcal vaccination on schedule, and were taking penicillin prophylaxis. There was a question about like two kids, whether they had gotten the pneumovax on time or whatever, but it looked, it looked like they probably had. UTI, which is not what we're worried about in these kids, was the most common serious bacterial infection, as you'd expect. Now, what about bacteremia? Nine children had bacteremia, nine of the 833, which is a little bit higher, so just right at 1%. It's a little bit higher than you expect in, you know, healthy two, three, four-year-olds with fever. Five of those children, so 0.6% of the total, had pneumococcal bacteremia, okay? 
and all five had been vaccinated and all five were on chemo prophylaxis with uh, daily penicillin. Four out of five of those children got ceftriaxone and were sent home from the ED at the index visit only later to grow out pneumococcus. They were all fine. They came back, got continued ceftriaxone and were fine. One of the five got placed on pioclindamycin due to an allergy, and that kid bounced back with meningitis. Whoopsers. But was treated, you know, fairly easily with vancomycin, and that was the end of it. The other four kids with bacteremia had salmonella bacteremia, which is another risk factor, and two of them had osteomyelitis. The study is really limited for a lot of reasons, including that it's single site with a unique subgroup of Middle Eastern children with sickle cell disease, but I think it brings home a few important things. The first is it's just a good reminder about sickle cell disease in children, which, you know, I work in a PZD and I rarely see. The risk of pneumococcemia and encapsulated organism bacteremia is higher at baseline. This rate of bacteremia has been observed in more modern studies with sickle cell disease in the U.S. to be low, like this study, around 1%. So this, this findings of less than 1% bacteremia are somewhat reassuring and definitely suggest it's not totally insane to discharge kids who meet the following criteria, and that would be that they've been completely vaccinated, they've been taking their chemoprophylaxis, you can give them a dose of ceftriaxone, and they look well and have a way to get back here. That's not an insane practice, and there are, you know, if you look in other recommendations, that's something that's considered possible. But you have to do all those things. You can't say, oh, this three-year-old child looks pretty well, I'm just going to discharge them. No, they need this, you need to give them ceftriaxone because there's this risk of 1% and you don't want to fall behind on their antibiotics, et cetera. The other thing is just to remember about chemoprophylaxis in sickle cell disease patients and to ask about it. And typically, in reviewing the literature and such, children with sickle cell disease are prescribed chemoprophylaxis with daily penicillin until they're about age five to seven. And that's when you know, their spleen is auto-infarcting and, and shriveling up and such. And, and that's when they're at their highest risk. And typically, after about that age, five to seven, they go back off of it because the risks of pneumococcal bacteremia are low again. Yeah, it seems to me like this paper is probably not going to change practice for most people listening. We're still going to do largely conservative strategy, but I really like it because it's just such a good reminder yeah. about some of these critical issues around sickle cell disease in children. And, you know, we're not going to see a lot of papers in this in the EMA Absolutely. world, that's for sure. So, you know, if this is like one of your major sources of getting, you know, CME and medical information is sort of this program, this really helps us you know, give the full the yeah. full view of emergency medicine, particularly on an important topic like this that is not rare. a lot of research on, yeah. and it's very, very rare. Yeah, you don't see it too often. I, I guess the the only practice changer I think here is that, you know, for me, I see a, a kid with sickle cell disease who looks perfect. I'm going to call their pediatrician. I'm going to call their hematologist. I'm going to be like, you know, do I need to admit them? And if they say no, no, you know, as long as they've been taking their chemoprophylaxis, their vaccination, you give them a dose of cetraxone, they look well, mom is like on the ball, all that kind of stuff. If they say, if, that, if those criteria are met, you can discharge them. You can feel somewhat reassured that that is reasonable, that the risk is less than 1%. And I think you can do that, but only in consultation with somebody like that, in my opinion. Editor's commentary. Clinicians should be aware that the risk of invasive pneumococcal disease is much higher in sickle cell disease patients than other children. 
this risk appears to be markedly reduced through pneumococcal vaccination and daily penicillin prophylaxis to the point that it might be reasonable to discharge some children with sickle cell disease and febrile illness. This is a difficult decision and one that should likely be made in consultation with the child's pediatrician and only if there are no concerns about parental reliability and only after panculturing and giving a dose of ceftriaxone. Abstract number 11, Diagnostic Accuracy of -of Point-of-Care Ultrasound, POCUS, for Shoulder Dislocations and Reductions in the ED, a Diagnostic Randomized Control Trial, and this is by Atard Biancardi et al. from the Emergency Medicine Journal. Shoulder injury and dislocation, very common reasons for presentation to an ED, and our job as providers largely is to decide, does the patient have a fracture? They have dislocation or both, right? That's sort of what we want to know. And or usually this is done. Yeah, well, if I miss the sprain, you miss the sprain. This is usually done first by a physical exam and then always almost followed by an x-ray. In this study from Malta, so this study was done in Malta, which, and they talk a little bit about the country and stuff in the paper, has a population of 450,000 people and only one ED. The authors assess the impact of POCUS on physical exam in adults with acute traumatic shoulder pain via a prospective open randomized trial of exam alone, so just physical exam, compared with exam plus POCUS. They ran the study for six months, randomized controlled trial. Any guess as to how many patients they enrolled in six months? In Malta, 400,000 people, I'd say 100. 1,200 patients. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> What? Oh, because it's anybody with shoulder pain. It's not just shoulder injury. Shoulder injury. It's not just dislocation. But that's okay. still pretty good to enroll twelve hundred patients in a prospective trial in six months. So wait, what? How many of the total population in Malta? What is that? That's like a fair number yeah, of people. And how many shoulder injuries per day? Right. Yeah. This is like this is a map. They said they got a consecutive sample, and I gotta believe them. Right. Because how could there be any missing people? Yeah. If you have they that provide many? a consort diagram. It's very impressive. You know, these consort diagrams, I don't know if we talk about that a lot on the program, but they sort of go step by step when you're doing a trial like this. And, you know, they say X number of people were excluded for this reason. And, you know, these people refused to participate. Down at the bottom, it's like we lost follow-up and we lost data on these people and stuff. Their consort diagram is so impressive. This is like one arrow. Literally, it's one arrow. No one declined to participate. No one crossed arms. No one was excluded from their analysis and no one was lost to follow. I mean, I don't want to be that guy, but like sometimes things are a little too good to be true. But it, you know. <laughs> either it's an amazing study or it's too good to be true. I'm gonna be the glass half full to start off the new year. Uh, Pollyanna so, Sanjay. How did how did they do this? You know, how did they enroll all these Because it's not like some big ivory tower teaching hospital they have there. What they did was they have 21 docs working in the ED. And they recruited them all to be investigators. And each doc did their own ultrasounds after a two-hour training. So it wasn't like an ultrasound you know, specialist came down or a team or something. They did their own ultrasounds. And they recruited all the ED nurses to be study coordinators. So of these about 1,200 cases, there were about 300 dislocations, 132 seen in the control group and 158 seen in the experimental group and 332 proximal humeral fractures. For the diagnosis of shoulder dislocation, 
exam alone had a sensitivity of about 80% and a specificity of about 60%, while exam plus POCUS had a sensitivity of 100% and a specificity of 95%. For the diagnosis of humeral fracture, exam alone had a sensitivity of about 83% and a specificity of 33%, while POCUS had a sensitivity of 96.6% and a specificity of 99.1%. They provide all test characteristics, including accuracy, negative predictive value, positive predictive value. They all got better with POCUS. This, when you read the whole manuscript, which I did, this is actually a very well-written paper. It's well-designed and well-reported, with the major research limitation being the lack of blinding to the study hypothesis which may have impacted their self-reported confidence in the physical exam findings. And the major limitation sort of to the message is they kind of make an argument saying, hey, we can just forego the x-ray in these patients from now on. And I'm like, "Mm, pump the brakes. It was all good until that point. I just can't imagine a world where really at this point in time, we don't do an x-ray on these people. And particularly if we think there's a fracture or something like the ultrasound finds it, I'm almost certain we're going to do an x-ray. So I, I just don't see the world, you know, yeah. like the vision, the message. I think the message of it being an adjunct is a very good one, right? Like I have used this a couple of times and I'm not like, you know, Mr. Ultrasound guy or something. In fact, I'm not that good at it, quite frankly, but I've done this a few times in shoulder dislocations in some pretty specific scenarios. Like I can think of one time where you know, we ended up having to sedate a patient for shoulder dislocation, and it was just really hard to figure out if it was in. You know, mm-hmm. we brought the ultrasound over, and we put it on the shoulder, and it was very clearly in. Yeah. Like, you know, it, it was, it, when right, you see it's it. It's very frustrating if you send them to get an x-ray and the sedation, you know, we have to let the sedation wear off, send them there, and then that's they right. come back, and it's like, ah, it's still out. You know, so that's for me, that's, that's where rare, I'm using it. But I bet if you're savvy with ultrasound, you could think of other places to use it too. I just know that this is one of those that's not too hard to do, right? It's not like, you know, very technically challenging to put the probe on, look at a couple of views. It's quite obvious when the humeral head is in the the fossa. So I think it's a nice skill to have in your toolbox looking at these shoulders with ultrasound. And overall, this paper is truthfully kind of, for me, an inspiring lesson on like, you know, people doing a study like this, doing a real randomized controlled trial in six months with 1,200 patients and getting it into a reasonable journal. And yeah, I think these authors did a really nice job. Editor's commentary. In this well-conducted randomized trial from Malta, the authors quantified the improvement in test characteristics with the addition of POCUS to the physical exam when evaluating a patient with shoulder injury in terms of diagnosing both dislocation and fracture. I do believe POCUS has value in these cases and have used it myself several times to look for things like successful relocation, but I am not sure we'll ever supplant an x-ray. Kudos to the authors for showing us all that trials can be done in settings not traditionally built for rigorous research. Quick take. Abstract number 12, and this is a quick take. Operative versus non-operative treatment of acute, unstable chest wall injuries, an RCT. This is in JAMA surgery. And we've covered a couple papers over the last several years looking at whether chest wall open reduction internal fixation is superior to standard pulmonary toilet types of interventions for patients with severe chest wall trauma. The results of those previous trials tended to favor the operative strategy 
but were limited by small sample size, lack of randomization, and concerns about generalizability. So these authors do the RCT to sort it all out. 207 patients with flail chest or severe chest wall deformity were randomized to operative repair versus conservative management. The study was performed at 15 trauma centers between 2011 and 2018, and the primary outcome was ventilator-free days during the first 28 days after injury. There were a lot of exclusion criteria related to whether or not basically the patient was a reasonable surgical candidate. And if they weren't a surgical candidate, they just were excluded from the study altogether. The mean age of the subjects was 53. 70% of the injuries were caused by motorized vehicles and 20% by falls. The mean number of rib fractures in the, in the study cohort was, take a guess, chest wall, flail chest? Six. Ten. Wow, that's a lot of rib fractures. <laughs> that's the mean. That seems like that needs to be repaired. So there was usually associated pneumothorax and hemothorax, like 80-something percent of the time, and the ISS scores were very high. Ultimately, the study itself is pretty negative. The mean ventilator-free days were 22.7 in the op group and 20.6 in the non-op group, a difference of two days, which was not statistically significant. All secondary complications were similar between the, the groups, including ventilatory-associated pneumonia, sepsis, need for trach, and things like that. Interestingly, even though it was not one of their a priori outcomes, the authors found that mortality was lower in the operative group than the non-op group, zero versus 6%. And they also observed that patients who were intubated at randomization, so the really sick ones, intubated at randomizations, has slightly shorter lengths of stay with the operative strategy than those who were managed conservatively, a finding with marginal significance, but a finding that also reversed for people who were not intubated. People who were not intubated did worse in terms of length of stay if they had the surgery versus otherwise. So ultimately, the results remain slightly mixed. On average, there's basically no effect on ventilator-free days or length of stay or anything like that. Maybe there's a hint of signal that the more injured people benefit, but this effect, like I said, is pretty small and curiously reverses for the, the other population. Finally, there's this mortality effect that does not have a plausible biologic mechanism and probably reflects confounding rather than a true effect. Editor's commentary. This is the largest study to date looking at operative management of severe chest wall trauma. The results are generally negative and suggest that this approach is no more effective than conservative approaches, even on patients who have very significant chest wall trauma. There may be subgroups, including those that are intubated early, that might benefit from this strategy, but that should be considered hypothesis generating at this time and not proven. Quick take. Abstract number 13. Safety and outcomes of short-term use of peripheral vasoactive infusions in critically ill pediatric population in the ED. This is by Young et al. from Scientific Reports. Hey. This one's a quick take. This is the second study from Scientific Reports this month. That's right. Just when you thought, we weren't going to cover it again, <laughs> here it is, three abstracts later. So, pressors are a key intervention for patients with shock who do not respond to fluids. And although the traditional route of administration is through a central line, the placement of a central line might increase the time to being able to get the pressors on board, and this delay or increase in time is likely more common in kids as that is not a procedure most of us do in pediatrics very often, putting in central lines. Yes, with an emphasis on 
I mean, what, very often? Or do not do, period. Yeah, <laughs> could be. The body of evidence is building in adults that peripherally administered pressors is likely safe for short periods of time, but there's not as much published data out there for pediatric patients. And these authors basically add to that evidence base via a retrospective cohort study of all children who received peripheral pressors over an eight-year period from a single emergency department in Singapore. And the authors say that as part of their clinical protocols, this wasn't a study protocol, these peripheral venous access sites are monitored for signs of extravasation, pain, swelling, erythema, leakage, and obstruction at time points of 0, 15, 30, 60, and 90 minutes from the point of line insertion and hourly thereafter. And basically identify 65 cases of kids who got peripheral pressors after excluding 13 for missing notes or some missing data. The mean age was about eight years. The most frequent diagnosis was septic shock in about 70% of the cases. The most frequent site of IV insertion was the upper extremity in over half. And the median time to conversion to central pressors was two hours. In sum, there were no identified cases of extravasation, tissue necrosis, or limb ischemia. Their data are limited by missing clinical information in many of the cases, so even in the 65 ones that they present, there were still some variables that they didn't have complete information on. They didn't give any information on the size of the IVs, and even location, it was something like a third, they were like, uh, not documented, you know, where the IV was placed, even though they're looking at it every five minutes, they didn't write down where it was. And there's some threats to generalizability because all these patients came from a single pediatric hospital. There's a couple other pediatric studies. There's one I think we covered in the program and a few adult studies that seems to be in line with most of them. I think generally, at least for short periods of time, the practice is safe. Editor's commentary. In this cohort study from Singapore, the authors reported no cases of extravasation or clinical complication when pressors were administered through a peripheral line in kids for a few hours. The retrospective design limits the strength of their findings, but I think the evidence is building that the practice is safe as long as you don't do it for too long, convert to a central line when possible, use a bigger IV if you are able and make sure that someone is monitoring for signs of extravasation, which occurs in other reports about 2% of the time. Abstract number 14, urine testing is associated with inappropriate antibiotic use and increased length of stay in emergency department patients. This is by Childers et al., and it's in Helion, or Helion. I don't know this journal. This is the first time we've ever had one. We send a lot of urinalyses on patients that have symptoms that are unlikely related to UTI, like a headache or abdominal pain, something like that. That's not to say the complaint could not be due to UTI. It's just not very likely, as opposed to dysuria, which is very likely, right? This practice is problematic because a lot of people have dirty urines, either due to, you know, due to collection techniques or whatever, or they literally have asymptomatic bacteria which we're not supposed to treat. But ED providers, when seeing these types of results, may elect to treat them anyway, exposing people to unnecessary antibiotics. This is the, the abundance of caution that people seem to be that's talking right. about now. That's right. Yeah, we'll see. I, I kind of, I'm sort of skipping ahead around here, but I keep it in my mind, I'm like, is 
the UTI, is that in the dirty urine? Is that the grown-up version of acute otitis media? You're like, yeah, yeah, sure. There's eight white cells there. And I want to give them antibiotics. So I'm going to call that a UTI. Just like when you look in the ear and the kid's been screaming bloody murder for 15 minutes. Ah, a little redness in there. You know, I'm just kind of wondering about that. I'll take the analogy. Okay. So this study attempts to quantify how often patients with these sort of tangential symptoms or chief complaints are treated for UTI and how often the culture in such patients is actually positive. Finally, if testing urine is associated with any difference in length of stay for those patients. It's a chart review out of two EDs in San Diego. Discharged ED patients with abdominal pain, chest pain, headache, vaginal bleeding were included. So symptoms that maybe could be, but are not obviously related to UTI, as were elderly female patients with weakness or confusion. The old weak and dizzy lady uh, could have just, could we just blow all of this off to cystitis? The cohort, and these were only discharged patients, just be clear about that. The cohort was analyzed for the presence of urine testing and whether they were treated with antibiotics. Patients were considered to have been treated for the UTI with antibiotics if they were given an antibiotic that was typical for urinary pathogen and they weren't giving any other antibiotics like uh, ciproflagyl, right? Because that would have been for some other abdominal thing. And if they had a positive urine culture or UA and culture scent. They had 50,000 ED visits over this like two-year study period that met their entry criteria. In the first part of the analysis, the authors found that a massive amount of urine testing was done. About 75% of patients with abdominal pain, vaginal bleeding, or that weakness that were elderly with weakness got urine testing. The numbers were way lower for headache and chest pain patients, but still around 20% of headache and chest pain patients got urine testing. The positive culture rate varied a lot by chief complaint. It was extraordinarily low for patients with abdominal pain, vaginal bleeding, and headache. One to two percent of all of those. You know, thousands, many thousands were positive. The culture was positive. It was about 7% for elderly patients with weakness. And the highest rate of positivity for the culture was in chest pain patients. And the authors postulate, and I think they're probably right, is their chief complaint was chest pain, but they probably said, oh yeah, and I also have dysuria. So that's why, even though not very many were sent, it was a high positive. What about a headache? Where'd headache fall? It was really, that was like 1%. It was 1%, like the abdominal pain, vaginal bleeding. And, you know, of course, we've all seen patients with pyelonephritis who've presented with ripping headaches. So that it's not to say that it can't happen. It's just unlikely, right? So treatment was much more common than culture positivity. 6% of abdominal pain patients were treated for UTI, even only 1% of them had culture positivity. Same was true of vaginal bleeding and, you know, other things were roughly double or triple. The treatment rate was roughly double or triple the actual culture positivity rate. In the second part of the study, they did a review of a random selection of individual charts to determine the proportion of patients treated with an antibiotic that actually had the combination of a positive urinary culture and symptoms that were suggestive of UTI. Because in the first phase, it was just chief complaint was headache, what was the risk? In this case, they went through those headache cases and looked and said, did they complain of flank pain? Did they have CVA tenderness? Things like that. So it was a much deeper dive. The methods for this part of it, though, are not very clean. You know, they say two people looked at it, but they didn't have like a very robust adjudication process or blinding or anything like that. So the methods are a little on the weak side. They found, however, 
that about 15% of patients treated for UTI had the combination of positive urine culture and symptoms. So unequivocally, those ones probably should have been treated. On the other hand, they found that about 45% of the patients that were treated had neither positive culture nor any symptoms or signs in the chart suggestive of actual urinary pathology. Again, that's the key finding. 50% of the people who were treated really didn't have anything that was specific for it and were proven to not have positive cultures, suggesting that overtreatment is totally rampant. Again, in the final piece of the paper, they show a weak association with UA testing and increased length of stay, which they say is probably because you have to wait around for people to get UAs and stuff like that. But it's, pretty, it's a pretty small effect. The study has a lot of limitations. It's a chart review, the spotty methods. It comes from only two academic centers. And there's serious questions about the definition of positive UTI symptoms. Like some people might say, anybody with abdominal pain, that's a UTI symptom. But I feel like overall, though, it rings true to me. You know, people coming in with right upper quadrant pain and we're getting urines on them. And I sort of get why we do it. But on the other hand, when they come back dirty, we end up treating them, especially when we don't have an alternative great explanation and the diagnosis remains sort of cloudy and murky at the time of discharge. This could be very counterproductive if, you know, we're diagnosing people with UTI who have abdominal pain of unclear etiology or, you know, something like that. And it could result in some delays, but certainly results in a lot of exposure to antibiotics that's not necessary. The authors conclude that clinicians should be much more discriminating when considering ordering a UA for patients that do not have clear symptoms of UTI. And that's probably right. But I think the safer conclusion is that we should not treat patients with positive UA and no symptoms. Rather, in such circumstances, make sure that we're able to follow up the culture results and treat only under those circumstances, which I recognize is a bit of a pain in the butt. But you know, the idea that we don't want to follow up the culture results and we don't have a great system for it is not a great reason to expose people unnecessarily to antibiotics and potentially confound their actual true reason for having headache or vaginal bleeding or whatever it is. Editor's commentary. This is an ambitious but fairly limited study attempting to determine the proportion of patients who received unnecessary antibiotics for UTI in the ED. The results show that the large majority of patients treated for UTI with vague complaints such as abdominal pain, vaginal bleeding, do not have symptoms and cultures indicating UTI and suggest that patients are likely grossly overtreated. Clinicians should be mindful of this when considering whether to send a UA and, more importantly, which cases to treat with antibiotics. House of Medicine. Abstract number 15 Prevalence and Sources of Duplicate Information in the Electronic Medical Record. This by Steinkamp et al. from JAMA Network Open. And as I mentioned in the intro, this paper was actually covered by the gentleman over at Right on Prime as well in their PCMA segment. So whether you are writing a note in the medical record, you're looking at old notes, you're looking through the chart for a patient, chances are very high that you have witnessed the cut and paste. All right, well, you just see 10 notes that all have exactly the same past medical history or God history. God forbid it be an oncology patient. Yeah, because then, it, then it's long. <laughs> yeah, so. then like the first 30,000 notes are all about tumor Letters markers. Letters and numbers that you and, don't know. Yeah, exactly. So in the introduction to this paper, the authors explain that the major hazards 
of the EMR here being information overload, which basically refers to this problem of being unable to find what you actually want to find because of the sheer volume of words and notes in the chart that all say essentially the same thing, but they're all there listed as separate things you have to look through. And then information scatter, where what you want is sort of like spread out among four different things and buried very deep within the notes. In this study, it's a pretty interesting study. The authors look at over 1 million clinical notes, 1 million, million. (laughs) to investigate the problem of duplication with goals of estimating the amount of duplication, looking at how duplication varies by note type, and seeing how much of duplication is within your own note, or, you know, maybe that's okay. It's your patient. You've seen them three times in a row now versus taking stuff from somebody else's note. So really cool question. That, that's plagiarism. It's oh, not duplication. you and your, don't get all legal on me. No, no, but it's like, it, I, I'm of course joking about that, but it is a little bit like, yeah, someone else's note that you took and put into your note. Yeah, it's, it's little... better than what you would write. Maybe it's okay. Yeah, it's like you shouldn't do it, right? <laughs> They analyzed all notes in the EMR from the UPenn Health System over five years and came up with a really clever method for identifying duplicated text. And it's described well in the paper. I'll kind of summarize it here. AI. Essentially, they came up (laughs) with like a strategy where they grouped 10 word adjacent text spans into something called a gram. So it wasn't just like you know, if if the word the and and was there, duplicated, you know, they had this 10 word segment. And then multiple grams kind of added together to make a duplication. So it was pretty clever and really interesting to read what they did. And then they some provide linguists and computer scientists got oh, together. Oh yeah, there definitely uh, definitely yeah. was some work together yeah. going on there. And then they provide data on 104 million notes from <laughs> wow. yeah from two million unique patients with 32 billion billion, with a B, words that they analyzed, or gram segments. But it was easy because 31 billion of them were the same. (laughs) So in total, 50.1%, so barely, but just over half of all clinical text was duplicated from a previous note, with 49.9% being novel. Of the duplicated text, Just over half, 54%, came from a previous note by the same author or earlier within that same note, like in their MDM, they copied something from above. And just under 50%, obviously 46%, came from a note from a different author. There's your plagiarism. Duplicated text was less common in brief communications, things like, you know, phone call, like the patient confirmed their visit upcoming or something like that, and in H&Ps. So like an admission H&P, something, you know, note sort of of that flavor, and more common in notes that were written at higher frequencies, like inpatient progress notes, which I think we all know that is true. You look at day five, you're doing a follow-up on a patient. I know. The five, so six, seven, it's like literally exactly yeah. the same note. It'd be interesting if like that you had to bold new text yeah. or something like that, so you knew what was different over the next day. Or if there was a feature that said, yeah, Control-Alt-R removes All old text. Yeah. (laughs) The amount of duplicate text increased from about a third for notes written in 2015 to over half to notes written in 2020. So the finding, their main finding, that over half 
of what is written in the medical record, if you look through some patients, over half of it is duplicated, has lots of implications, really important ones. And we could spend forever talking about this and people could sort of share their thoughts on it, I think, and writing into the EMA program. And I wrote down just a couple. The duplicated half, half, we can call it that, right, of the content not only provides no new information, by definition is exactly the same, but it can dramatically increase the amount of time required for the reading clinician to discern what information is accurate, timely, versus false, and completely irrelevant. Number two, the bloated medical record might lead to repeating past interventions or directly causing patient harm because you just can't find what you need. You know, there's like millions of words in there. You're like, I don't know if they got the CT. I'm just going to get the CT. It's like getting so big that you can't find what you need. Let me just bring up my last point here. The last point I wanted to make, and there's lots, is that this sort of really, it's a viral level of duplication of what's going on in this chart. If there's an error, that error is going to replicate virally as well and then become almost impossible to correct because a number of records that contain that error, like, you know, said somebody had an appendectomy, somebody wrote that, a medical student wrote it and something, 50% of the stuff is copied. Yeah. The next person writes the same thing. It's in a hundred notes now. It's true on some level. Yeah, well, it's like the Twitter it. world. It's like yeah. the lie gets around the world, you know, before the truth has breakfast or whatever they yeah. say. Yeah. So anyway, go ahead. Do you have a Oh, you know, I was, I was just thinking about like, you know, because... I, now, I don't do cut and paste in my notes. Because you, you don't know how. I, that's exactly right. Because our system has a little tiny block, and it's like, you have to, it's not control V, you have to do something else. I'm like, I don't know how to do it. It's control C. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> that's the copy part for it. But the point is that I don't really do it. But what I do see a lot is that people will add in like a couple words, like you said, like what's new, but it's buried in the middle of these. Th- There's no chance you'll see it unless you're so careful and it's so easy to overlook. And, you know, so I totally agree. And I, I you know, yeah, the discussion section here is like a real, this is a really cool paper. I see why I was covering another program. People are yeah. talking about this one a lot because the solution is like, it would really require a total rethink mm-hmm. of the way we do the EMR and yeah. no one is going to Right, because to there's do also. That information that gets replicated that's important. It's not like all of the information that's replicated is lame, right? I mean, like, so, you know, especially if you're an oncology patient, whatever, you're looking through all that kind of stuff. It is fascinating. I do, I wonder things like with complicated patients, this must be like the bloat must be so much more because they have so much more yeah, notes. The, yeah, so they, much, they yeah. go into a lot of detail in this paper mm-hmm. about the number of notes per patient, yeah. how that relates to the amount of duplicated text. And you're exactly right. The more notes you had, the much more likely it is that a bunch of it is just noise. Right, right. And, th- and that's the, pa- the very patients where you need that signal-to-noise ratio to be much higher because they're so complicated. <laughs> and one <laughs> would know? assume also the chance of viral error in those patients being worse as well. So that's a problem. Guys, yeah, uh, yeah, I was I was thinking about another just sort of cultural phenomenon just for a sec that I feel like a lot of people think the length of their note is indicative of like you've done your job. You know, like I wrote a long note that I've clearly cared for this patient and that induces cut and paste and all that kind of stuff. And you know, it'd be interesting to like sort of, you know, if you can incentivize the reverse, like, can you write a short note that gets all, you know, like, cause that would de-incentivize that person. If you had to pay 
per character or something like that for your yeah. Dog. And so it's you know we're there call- are some remediation it's possibilities. We're calling it a cut and paste, but you know when I was like talking about this paper a little bit with Amanda, my wife Amanda, who's a community ER doc, you know, and she was sort of like, well, what about dot phrase like MDM and stuff? Dot phrases. How does that you know if you see a patient with a headache and you have a dot phrase for headache? And I'm that like, that's count. a good question. You know, that probably counts. Well, that would be a. And I don't know if that's necessarily wrong for you to use dot phrases for your MDMs or exam or something like that, but. The issue is complicated. Yeah. It's going to require someone way, way smarter than the two people staring at each other in this room to even right. conceive but of it's a But it is an important one, and it's one that's going to get worse over time, not better. Editor's commentary. In this fascinating look at over 1 million medical notes, the authors found that just over half of all text was copied directly from a previous note and that the duplicated text came from one of your own notes about half the time and from someone else's notes the other half. This excess volume contributes to information overload, making it much more difficult to search a chart or medical record for what you actually need and can propagate errors in a viral fashion, making them near impossible to correct. This is a major problem that is getting worse over time but real solutions would require a rethinking of the way we document and chart entirely. Abstract number 16, use of a semi-automatic text message system to improve satisfaction with wait time in the adult emergency department, a cross-sectional survey study. This is by Erler et al., and it's in JMIR Medical Informatics. So this is basically what every restaurant in the United States does now but applied to the ED for non-urgent patients, and I sort of love it. Obviously, managing the queue of patients waiting to be seen in the ED is a major issue. Long wait times are associated with decreased satisfaction, increased left-without-being-seen rates, increased staff interruptions as patients who are waiting continually come up and say, hey, did you call my name? When am I due? Etc. And there's even some recent studies that show that it's associated with increased violence towards staff by angry patients, and hospital-acquired infections, which you know gained prominence during COVID because people are sitting out there milling about and coughing on each other and all that kind of stuff. So the nature of emergency medicine, with frequent and somewhat unpredictable surges in demand and changes in capacity, like when boarding increases and whatnot, make giving reliable estimates of when a patient might expect to be seen basically impossible. What if the patient could wait somewhere else for a couple hours and get texted when their turn was approaching? Might this improve the conditions in the waiting room or at least make people feel like their wait was less terrible? If you're like, okay, well, I'm not that sick. I'd go over, get some coffee or whatever. Makes sense. It's what you do at every mall when you're at a restaurant, which makes the 45-minute wait totally manageable, right? Well, that's what they did. These Swiss investigators did this exact same thing. They developed a text message system that could semi-automatically update low-acuity ED patients when their turn to be seen was forthcoming. And it's semi-automatic because basically when the patients come in, they load them into this system, and then the system sort of says like, oh, it's been this long, their expected you know, wait was around this long, and so they come up as like an orange color, and then the nurse hits a button and it sends a text message automatically. It's not like anyone has to directly type in, oh, you are expected to be seen within the next 30 minutes or whatever it was. In this way, patients could theoretically be better able to manage their expectations and they could leave the hospital, they could come back when it's closer to their term, et cetera. 
the system could also update them and explain that the wait time has gotten longer than initially expected because there was a surge in demand or whatever. The program they designed was homegrown, and several of the authors had intellectual property rights to the system, so there's a conflict to be sure. The study itself is pretty simple. It's basically a Mikey likes it study. They enrolled 100 people in this ED who were triaged to the category three or four, which is like in Switzerland, which is even lower than a three or four here, and then put them into this queuing system. Once they were called back, so after they'd done their wait and got their text message that said, you're almost due, and then actually got into a room, as soon as they got into a room, they gave them a satisfaction questionnaire, which they had made up. There was no control group. And they really do not explain their exclusion and inclusion criteria in a way that would make this reproducible. Overall, the subjects were pretty young. The mean age was 38. They generally did not wait long at all. 80% of them waited less than two hours. And these are all for like low acuity patients. What's the key result? Basically, 97% were well satisfied with the text message system. And there's like one person who was like, it was okay, whatever, you know. Probably waited like three minutes. He's like, I don't need you buzzing my phone to tell me that I'm not going to wait for three minutes. The only other little tidbit from this paper was that most of the people, 80% of them, waited in the hospital waiting room anyway. They didn't go home or do anything like that. You know, but that might reflect overall the short wait times. If they're, you know, in our hospital, it could be like, yeah, it's going to be six hours. They'd be like, I'm going to go to work and come back. Who knows? Obviously, from a scientific perspective, a lot more work needs to be done to prove that this actually impacts satisfaction. You have to have control groups and some things like that, or some other measure of health system efficiency, including lack of violence and whatever. We also obviously need to consider the legal and ethical implications of giving people a system that basically encourages them to leave the hospital when they present it for an emergency condition. That's a real issue. Yeah, that's, right? I was going to ask that. Yeah. So. It's an open question, I guess. Switzerland. They don't have Mtala. But no, I mean, you know, so really there you have to have a very knowledgeable person and the ability to say you do not have a time-sensitive emergency, you know, and you can just bounce for eight hours. But then it calls into question all these questions about like, well, should they be, if you can say that, why don't you just say go home and just go to your primary care doctor or whatever, you know? So there's a lot of ethical sort of implications around it still. Queue management in overcrowded EDs is just really important. And having systems that do not involve using our depleted nursing staff to continually update, you know, sort of angry patients to me is there are problems in the symptom, but it's kind of a no brainer, right? I mean, this is the kind of thing we should definitely be developing and making it work and making sure it's legal and it's ethical and all that stuff. But the alternative of just letting the mass of humanity sit there getting angry with each other, getting angry with the staff, and then leaving without being seen when maybe they were going to be seen in 20 minutes, that's no better than you know some of these alternatives. So there's a lot of work to be done, but very cool. What can I say? I'm a fan. Editor's commentary. This is a very basic study looking at participant satisfaction with a semi-automatic text message system designed to help improve patient satisfaction with the waiting experience in the ED. The results are extremely limited due to the small sample size, single site, and lack of control, but the concept is compelling. Abstract number 17. Emotional exhaustion among U.S. healthcare workers before and during the COVID-19 pandemic 2019-2021 to 
This by Sexton et al. from JAMA Network Open. So, in addition to the massive toll on human life and the impact that everybody felt, whether you're a healthcare worker or not, on your day-to-day life at the start of and in the middle of the COVID pandemic and still feeling it today, it put a never-before-seen level of stress on every healthcare worker out there, from top to bottom, anyone working in the hospital, from you know the EKG tech to the nurses to the doctors, administrators, all of it. And I think Early in the pandemic, most of us probably were a little bit afraid. This was like a new disease. We had no idea what was going on. We had like, you know, ventilators on our faces and things going Only into rooms. Only time in my career I've ever been afraid to go to work. Yeah. And, you know, we're afraid for ourselves, afraid for our families. But this was kind of, in a way, I think, counterbalanced by a little bit of like almost a sense of purpose. It's like, okay, this is what the training was for. This is what to do this kind of stuff. And, you know, I think there was a community perception, like healthcare worker heroes and all this stuff early in the pandemic. Yeah, you remember those videos in Spain and Italy. I don't see, we didn't see too many here. Maybe a few in New York of people like at eight o'clock That's at night. exactly clapping. right. Definitely motivated you to go to work. I'll tell you that. I, I wasn't, I was afraid, but I was, I, I felt proud, you know? That's right. Proud is a good word. Mm-hmm. And then as the pandemic went on, Delta and Omicron surged, the public view on COVID started to change. Unvaccinated patients became kind of the daily norm. You'd see sick people coming in who'd refused to be vaccinated. Staffing shortages became a huge problem, stressing out the people who were there. And for some of us, even incomes went down because ED volumes were down a lot. Those of you working in RVU system can certainly attest to that being true. All of this then combined to create a state of physical and emotional exhaustion like I'm just done. I don't want to go to work anymore. I can't do this anymore. And I think everyone listening can appreciate on some level the toll this pandemic has taken on individual level and sort of group level in the emergency department, mental health. And what the paper, the authors of this paper are trying to do is quantify the magnitude of this via a survey study of healthcare workers. Basically conducted a survey across two large U.S. healthcare systems spanning 76 widely geographically dispersed hospitals at three time periods. Before the pandemic in September 2019, at the start of the pandemic, what they call the start anyway, September 2020, and then after the introduction of vaccines and vaccine mandates and the rise of the Delta variant, which was in September 2021 through December 2021 at one healthcare system and closer to January in the second healthcare system. So kind of like early pandemic, late pandemic, and pre-pandemic. They filled out something called the SCORE survey, which assesses safety culture and workforce well-being and engagement and includes an emotional exhaustion scale. They invited about 50,000 healthcare workers to participate, and the response rate actually wasn't too bad, considering it was just sort of an email blast, it seemed like. 75%, 85%, and 76%, respectively, in the three time periods. In the first time period, compared to the last time period, overall emotional exhaustion increased the prevalence of it or self reported prevalence or rate from 31.8% to 34.6% in the middle period in period two to 40.4% in period three, late pandemic. Interestingly, I found this kind of interesting. The trend was a little different between nurses and doctors. As for doctors, emotional exhaustion 
actually dipped down from pre-pandemic levels to early pandemic, and then went up a lot in year two. So it went from 31% to 28%, and then popped up to close to 40% by the end of year two. So maybe it was that we kind of felt proud, we felt good, we felt like we were doing something, saving lives. And then all of this other stuff piled on and things just went sideways. Yeah, all that effort was for nothing. <laughs> exactly. So whereas for nurses- Which is not true, by the way, but it felt that way. Whereas for nurses, it went steadily up through the whole thing from 40% to 46% to 50%. All other healthcare worker roles, they talk to techs, therapists, administrators, basically follow the same trend as the nurses. So the doctors were the big exception. They didn't provide as many values because there weren't as many N. You know, the N wasn't as big other than doctors and nurses. So their findings definitely ring true. You know, I think it was important to cover this paper just to give us all a little bit of perspective on, you know, we're not alone in thinking that we're seeing a lot of burnout, maybe even feeling it, but seeing it in our colleagues and things like that. It's possible that the magnitude, maybe even the direction of their findings would be different if they had more specific individual level healthcare worker data. They didn't have access to things like physician specialty, work setting type. Were they in a clinic or were they in a hospital? Were you ER doc or were you a rheumatologist? You know, other demographic or confounding variables because, you know, in the pandemic, doctors' work lives weren't all the same, yeah, you know? I'm we quite were, aware. <laughs> we were going to work, working on the front lines, and some doctors changed their whole practice to telemedicine and were staying And by home. some, you mean the large majority. The large majority. So they group them all together yeah. here. And I'm not sure that's exactly right. I mean, I see a tease up, but they just didn't have that information. No, I'd love to see this for emergency physicians in particular, you know, and other hospital-based, I mean, intensivists. Talk about people that, you know, really had to deal with it. Absolutely. Yeah, people in the hospital still are coming to work. They only evaluated emotional exhaustion here. They didn't look at other dimensions of well-being, like anxiety, depression, burnout, and things like that. But I bet those things auto-correlate, though. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. I think they do. I think this is a really interesting and very, very, very appropriate paper to cover on the program. This was a tough period. We're still going through it, most of us, and still feeling the impact of it. It's important to have some support systems and things like that. But we got to maintain the people in our specialty, you know, yeah. the people who well, went through this. That's a big this. question. Yeah. That's a big question. How to do it is a tough one. But yeah, you know, most of my career, people have talked about physician well being or whatever. And, and I've sort of been like, Come on, man. What are you talking about? Like doctors who make a lot of money, you know, are are don't don't love their job. Emergency physicians who make a lot of money don't love their job. Well, you know, whatever. But now we're really seeing the effects of that kind of thing. With people leaving the specialty, the brain drain is real. It's not as bad, honestly, for physicians, but where we're seeing it on the nursing side is just horrific. The early retirements, the leaving emergency medicine to go into just more sane places where you can work regular hours or from home and whatnot. It's, it's, it is really threatening, you know, the sort of foundation of our specialty. And, you know, we, we do need to respond. Yeah, and solutions are going to be very, very hard to come by. Editor's commentary. I know everyone listening to this program can attest to the significant impact the COVID-19 pandemic had and continues to have on the emotional well-being of all types of healthcare workers, ranging from providers to nurses to people working up front at registration to techs and everyone in between. 
As a specialty and as a medical community, we need to develop and offer support and solutions for healthcare workers and be there for our colleagues to ensure that this trend of increasing emotional exhaustion does not lead to burnout and people leaving the workforce altogether. On a personal note, thank you to all of you for being out there on the front line in the face of tremendous uncertainty over the last few years. You're definitely all healthcare heroes. Abstract number 18, Law Enforcement in the Emergency Department. This is by Allure et al., and it's in JAMA Surgery. And we recently covered a paper in EMA on this topic that laid out a variety of stakeholder opinions on the presence of law enforcement officers in the ED. It was a qualitative study, and the study found overall that law enforcement officers clearly have a role to play in the ED in terms of investigating potential crimes, providing custodial care for patients under arrest, and fostered a sense of general safety. On the other hand, the same study found that their presence was often viewed as intrusive and interfering with clinical care and the good ethical practice of emergency medicine, which involves, you know, patient confidentiality, etc. This paper adds a quantitative component to that, specifically looking at how often law enforcement officers are actually present. The other one was vague. What do you think about when you think about law enforcement officers in the ED? This one says, how often are they actually sitting there, you know, creating these disparate impressions? It's an observational study conducted at a single ED in Philadelphia over a short period of time from July to August 2021. Most of the observation periods were during the day hours, but some extended to midnight and there were no overnight observation hours because the basic strategy they used is they had RAs, they were, you know, these usual type of people who work roughly from seven to midnight and they would walk around looking for, you know, police, et cetera. The assistants then charted the who, what, why, when, where, and how of what those officers were doing. And then that's what the study is. It's a largely descriptive study of all of that. There were 348 total observation hours during the study period, during which at least one law enforcement officer was present for 108 hours. So 31% of the time, there was a law enforcement officer in the ED when they were observing ED phenomena. This was more common in the evening and hours, and as I said, there weren't any overnight hours, so we don't know. Law enforcement officers' direct intervention with patients or their providers was actually really uncommon and very brief. It was about five minutes if they were talking to a patient, and it was less than two minutes any observed interaction between a law enforcement officer and a provider, less than two minutes. Almost all the patients that they were associated with had experienced physical trauma. Almost 40% were gunshot victims. 20% were MVCs, 8% assaults, 4% stab wounds, 4% taser injuries. 30% of the patients were under arrest or under investigation. 26% were survivors or witnesses. And the remainder, for the remainder of the patients, about a third, it was unclear what the relationship between the law enforcement officer and the patient was. And where did they hang out? As you'd expect, 20% of them were in the hallway, but most of the time they were in the patient's room or trauma bay. So that's the study. How does it advance things? Well, you know, again, the prior studies regarding law enforcement officers in the, in the ED 
talked about how it made people feel, but didn't quantify how present they were. It would be different if I don't like police being there or I like police being there, but fundamentally they're only there, you know, on Saturdays at 3.30 in the morning, you know, like for an hour and it's not that big of a deal. But this one really highlights that they're around a lot, 31% of the time. So to me, this means that staff, patients, and law enforcement officers deserve to have developed policies and training so that the clinical space can remain as free as possible from potentially unwanted observers, the law enforcement officers, who might interfere with clinical care, right? While at the same time, allowing them to do their duty, which is to investigate crimes, keep people in custody. And right now, when they've looked at this kind of information across the country, there's almost no policies written about it. And it creates this very you know, unsettling and apparently common situation where, you know, we have to negotiate or navigate this without guidelines. We do it ad hoc, and that's probably not good for anyone. Editor's commentary. This observational study shows that at least at this center in Philadelphia, law enforcement officers are present in the ED 31% of the time. Given this high prevalence, and the potential for such legal authorities to influence patients' behaviors, hospitals should develop policies and guidelines to minimize the intrusion of these agents into patient care while allowing for them to fulfill their legal duties. Such policies are, to date, few and far between. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the January 2023 Emergency Medicine Abstracts Ultra Summary. <laughs> very excited for a new year. Yes. <laughs> this is Jenny Beck Esme. As always, I'm with Jess Monas. Happy New Year. Welcome back. Thank you. Happy New Year. Jess, how was your new year? Um, the new year hopefully will be wonderful. <laughs> I was going to have you lie and pretend like you actually were in 2023 and like did some time travel, but never mind. You know what? I'm sure it is great. You I'm... have to keep it real with the EMA audience. No telling of fibs or pretending we're time travelers. You know what? It's called suspension of disbelief. This, right. is, this is what we do, right? <laughs> right? Exactly. Well, we have 18 fantastic papers. I really like them. So should we dive in? Let's do it. Okay. Paper number one. Aggressive or moderate fluid resuscitation in acute pancreatitis. This is a very well done, multi-center, open-label, parallel group, randomized controlled superiority trial. So many words to describe the trial. Across 18 different centers where they're looking at early weight-based aggressive versus non-aggressive and goal-directed fluid resuscitation for early acute pancreatitis. And their primary outcome was the development of moderate or severe acute pancreatitis. So basically, progression of the disease. They looked at patients with less than 24 hours of pain who met the revised Atlanta criteria for actually having acute pancreatitis. And they excluded any patients with severe illness, volume overload, a variety of electrolyte abnormalities, chronic pancreatitis, really anybody who would be more complicated than your just simple, straightforward acute pancreatitis. The fluid resuscitation was done like this. The aggressive group got a 20 milliliter per kilogram bolus of LR and then three mLs per kilogram per hour infusion for two days. Or the moderate fluid group got 10 mLs per kilogram bolus of LR only if they had signs of hypovolemia 
followed by an infusion of one and a half mLs per kilo per hour for 20 hours, so a shorter period of time. The trial was stopped early due to major safety differences between the two groups. Basically, they found that the aggressive fluid resuscitation group was far more likely to develop volume overload, of course. With, Shocker. <laughs> yeah. With a statistical significance without any improvement in the primary outcome, meaning there was no difference between the two groups in the development of moderate to severe pancreatitis. So this led their safety monitoring board to unanimously recommend that the trial just be stopped. This is a very well-done study and keeps with the general trend in fluid resuscitation that we've been seeing in other conditions like sepsis. Less might actually be more. You know, and the problem here also is like, for instance, with pancreatitis, right? They're like, if you give a certain amount of fluids, then you're inpatient status. And if you don't, then you'd be up. Sure, you know, yeah. Right? And this, I feel like, can negatively influence treatment. And, I, and that's why I think it just shouldn't be a part of whatever you're making the status to be. Because as you see here, more is not always better. Yeah, I hadn't even considered that, but that's a really good point. All right, paper two. Association of Emergency Department Crowding with Inpatient Outcomes. The authors of this paper examined almost 6 million hospital visits to demonstrate that ED overcrowding affects inpatients too. ED crowding on the day of discharge was associated with longer hospital length of stays, lower readmissions, and higher mortality. The increase in hospital length of stay was driven by elective admissions. When everything is a hot mess, they're the first to wait. Higher mortality was driven by unscheduled admissions. When resources are stretched thin, bad things can happen. And the drop in readmissions? Well, when there's no room at the inn, if you're on the fence, you go home. While the differences in this study were small, they were there. Perhaps this can help admin to finally realize it's not just an AD problem. I mean, from your lips to admin's ears, because... <laughs> <laughs> Something's got to give, right? Paper number three, serious bacterial infections in young febrile infants with positive urinalysis results. In this paper, the authors from the PCARN group perform a secondary analysis of their large prospective observational study that they did on stable febrile young infants, so less than or equal to 60 days, who had at least one blood culture and a urinalysis. The question they're trying to answer here is really, how much workup do I need to do once I think I have found an answer, specifically a UTI? If I have a positive UA, do I need to keep going? When it came to bacteremia, the risk of a positive blood culture was higher for those with a positive UA, 6% versus 1%. So if you find a UTI, you probably still need the blood culture. When it comes to the LP, there was a difference based on the age of the baby. For younger babies, those less than or equal to 28 days, there was no difference in the prevalence of bacterial meningitis whether or not they had a positive UA. But for older infants, those between 29 and 60 days who had a positive UA, there were zero cases of bacterial meningitis. But for babies with a negative UA, 0.2% of the infants had bacterial meningitis. So this study would suggest that in a slightly older infant, if you find a UTI, you can likely safely forego the LP. Let's sum that all up. In the smallest babies, those under 28 days, your workup should stay broad, UA, blood cultures, and LP. And all babies should probably get the UA and the blood cultures. But in the older babies, those 29 to 60 days, if you found a UTI, 
make sure you got that blood culture, but then you can probably stop without performing the LP. I love this. (laughs) This is great data from a reputable research group that can help you avoid a cumbersome and painful procedure. Win, 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 win. All right. Paper four. Temperature control after in-hospital cardiac arrest, a randomized clinical trial. I thought we had put this to bed, but apparently that was only for out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. So let's talk about in-hospital ones. About 250 patients were randomized to hypothermia versus normothermia post-arrest. There was no difference between groups in terms of mortality or favorable neurologic outcomes. I think we're done here. Short and sweet. I like it. <laughs> I mean, really, there's not much to say. Right. Like, It's not even a quick take, but that's it. Done. Stop. Great. Stop that. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> Paper number five, implementation and facilitation of post-resuscitation debriefing. There is little doubt that debriefing after emotional events is beneficial for all the staff involved. In this study, the authors aim to compare two different standardized tools that can be used to help facilitate the debriefing process. The study is a prospective crossover study done in the ED, PICU, NICU, and CODE team at a children's hospital. The two tools they looked at were the Debriefing Insight 2 Conversation After Emergent Resuscitation Now, DISCERN, which is designed to target performance improvement, and the Postcode Pause, PCP, which focuses more on emotional well-being of the team. Roughly 60 of each debrief type were performed during the study period, with the majority occurring in the ED, and it's good to know that on average, they took about 14 minutes to complete. On a whole, more participants felt that the PCP tool provided emotional support, which makes sense because that's what it was designed to do. But interestingly, more participants also felt that the PCP tool more strongly supported clinical education. Overall, however, both tools seem to be beneficial. Which again, just makes sense to me since we know debriefing is good. I mean, it's good in the papers, it's good in our souls. So doing it in a structured, reliable, predictable way is probably also good. This is a great paper giving us further evidence to pursue debriefing in our departments and perhaps a few specific tools to use if you're trying to get this process implemented or improved at your shop. You know what? And I think it's a really important in the emergency department because, you know, the thing about our job is we can't stop. No. You know, mm-hmm. something happens. It's like, okay, there's still a whole waiting room full of people, right? So I think debriefing is super important there. I completely agree. And if you don't stop and do it in the moment, it's not going to happen. And then this stuff just festers, right? And that's right. when you get home and you snap or you drink or you do whatever it is that you're doing to cope with whatever you experienced during the day because you didn't take the 14 minutes needed to do it in the moment. And unless there's another absolutely critically ill patient, 14 minutes is probably reasonable. Agree. Paper six, influence of age on the diagnosis of myocardial infarction. Back in the day, we'd throw in a trope on the weak and dizzy old person without batting an eye. With high-sensitivity troponins, We know better. Why? Because everything goes up in old people. We age-adjust D-dimers for this reason, so what about high-sensitivity troponins? In this study, the sensitivity for it was around 80% for all ages. Specificity ranged from 98% for age less than 50 to 83% over the age of 74. When they age-adjusted the troponin, specificity improved in the older group to 91%, 
but this was at the expense of sensitivity, which dropped to 56%. Wah, wah. This, my friends, is a deal breaker. Wah, wah. <laughs> Paper number seven, defining the learning curve for endotracheal intubation in the emergency department. So these authors are trying to determine how many intubations it takes to become truly proficient. It's a single center study in South Korea where every single intubation by every single resident was observed over a seven-year period. They wanted to use their data to estimate the number of tubes required for a novice to achieve first attempt success rate of 85% or better. And they defined an attempt as the insertion of the laryngoscope blade into the mouth, regardless of whether an ET tube was successfully passed. So very strict definition of first attempt success. They did some complicated statistical analysis and found that at least 119 intubations were needed to achieve a first attempt success rate of more than 85%. Compare that to the ACGME requirement of 35 intubations in residency and eek. Now, a few things that Sanjay points out. This is using statistical analysis to predict proficiency with most of the residents in this study performing around 80 intubations during their time there. Additionally, airway management proficiency involves a lot more than first attempt success. Success after a single blade insertion is certainly a very strict definition. But whatever you make of this, it is a good reminder that this is a critical skill and it takes practice and repetition. And no matter where you are in your training or after your training, more practice will only make you better. More practice, more better. More. Got it. Okay, I almost said that, and then <laughs> I stopped myself, but I'm glad you did. More practice, more better. Yeah. Paper eight, effect of high-flow nasal cannula oxygen versus standard oxygen therapy on mortality in patients with respiratory failure due to COVID-19, the SOHO COVID randomized clinical trial. High-flow nasal cannula grew in popularity with COVID. This paper compared it to standard oxygen in COVID-positive patients in respiratory distress to see if there was a difference in intubation rates or mortality. Patients were randomly assigned to high flow or a non-rebreather initially set to 10 liters per minute. Around half of patients were intubated, and while intubations were 8% less with high flow, there was no difference in mortality, the primary outcome. That being said, the background mortality rate was lower than expected, so the study may not have been adequately powered. So while it may not have changed the death rate per se, I would still rather stave off intubation. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, high-flow nasal cannula got more popular during COVID, but I think it's also just kind of been getting more popular in general over the last five to 10 years, which we're actually going to talk about here in the next paper, paper number nine, high-flow nasal cannula in bronchiolitis at a pediatric emergency department, trends and outcomes. So... We didn't time travel. We are recording in November 2022. So for all of the listeners in the future, we are in an RSV bronchiolitis firestorm in the United States. Mm, it is taking yep. over. <laughs> it's taking over the world. And with flu and COVID now going up to it's, it's a real disaster. There are a large bag of tricks that we may or may not throw at these kids, you know, antibiotics, steroids, different nebulizers. But none of those have very high quality evidence or have been found to actually impact the course of the illness. So this paper is a single center retrospective cohort study 
analyzing the clinical factors associated with the use of high-flow nasal cannula in kids with bronchiolitis. So who is it getting used on? And looking for any trends that might be associated with an impact on clinical outcome. So they looked at almost 12,000 kids ages 2 to 24 months. And overall, 8% of kids were started on high-flow nasal cannula. Interestingly, the study period covered six years and shows a clear trend of an increase in high-flow nasal cannula use. Early on in the study, only about 1% of kids were started on it and up to 17% toward the end. The results, unfortunately, are a bit confusing. In the abstract, they state that there were no significant changes over time in the rates of hospital admission, PICU admissions, PICU transfers, but in the body of the paper, it seems that all of these rates increased over time, and it's kind of hard to figure out why that is. Overall, I don't really know what to make of this paper, except that the use of high-flow nasal cannula seems to be increasing, particularly in these kids with bronchiolitis. Is it worth a try in these kids? Maybe in the middle of the disaster that is the 22-2023 bronchiolitis season? Yeah, sure, maybe. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it's so hard, right? It's right. like we, literally there's all these things that we do that don't impact outcomes at all. So right. it's like we're grasping at straws here. Right. But like you said, if it staves off intubation, even for a while, isn't that better? I mean, as long as the intubation still can be done in a controlled setting later on, I don't know. I don't always know what to make of these papers. And this is just another one I don't know what to make of. All right. Paper 10. Frequency of serious bacterial infection among febrile sickle cell disease children in the era of the conjugate vaccine, a retrospective study. Sickle cell patients are at risk for infection with encapsulated gram-positive organisms such as strep pneumo. This rate has declined over time due to the conjugated pneumococcal vaccine, Prevnar, as well as antibiotic prophylaxis. This study looked at the prevalence of serious bacterial infections in febrile children with sickle cell disease who were both vaccinated and taking the prophylaxis. About 3.5% of the kids had an SBI, the majority had a UTI, followed by bacteremia, and about half the blood culture isolates were pneumococcus. The authors conclude that if a febrile child with sickle cell disease is vaccinated and on regular penicillin, it is not unreasonable to give a dose of ceftriaxone and send them home, assuming they have good follow-up and a reliable social support. A consult with their pediatrician or hematologist prior to discharge is probably not a bad idea either. The last two points, I think, are the best ones. You know, assuming reliable follow-up and a good social support system. And definitely try and get in touch with somebody who can help assure that that's happening. Yep. Paper number 11. Diagnostic accuracy of point-of-care ultrasound, POCUS, for shoulder dislocations and reductions in the emergency department. This is a prospective, open, randomized trial of physical exam alone versus exam plus POCUS for the evaluation of adults with acute traumatic shoulder pain. For diagnosis of shoulder dislocation, exam alone had a sensitivity of around 80%, and a specificity of around 60%. But exam with POCUS had a sensitivity of 100% and a specificity of 95%, much better. When it came to diagnosing a humeral fracture, exam alone had a sensitivity of around 80%, specificity of around 30%, but exam plus POCUS had a sensitivity of 97 and specificity of 99. Again, much better. Essentially, adding POCUS improved all test characteristics, including accuracy, 
and negative and positive predictive values. I agree with the point Sanjay makes in the main section. I'm not sure that POCUS will ever really take over for x-ray in these patients, but it certainly seems to be a good adjunct. And for sure, it's going to be helpful in a resource-poor area where a doc may have a handheld ultrasound probe, but no x-ray available. You know what? I was just going to make that point, right? Like what I'm hearing here is if you are in like a resource-poor environment, then this is great. This is great. But if I've got an x-ray, you know what? It's easier for me to click like order x-ray than it is to get the ultrasound, bring it in, do it all, you know? But yeah, I mean... I don't love that that's the reason why I might fall back on an x-ray, but (laughs) with the reality of our departments being what they are, ordering an x-ray and then sending that study off to be someone else's problem is certainly a more efficient use of my time when I have a dozen more patients waiting for me. You know, that's just the reality of it. But this does seem like it's a great tool in the right settings. Absolutely. Paper number 12. Operative versus non-operative treatment of acute unstable chest wall injuries, a randomized clinical trial. This was a multi-center study comparing patients with flail chest or severe chest wall deformity to operative versus non-operative treatment. There was no significant difference in ventilator-free days between groups. Mortality was 6% higher in the non-operative group, but the authors point out that the reasoning for this is unclear since the common causes for death such as pneumonia, VAP, and sepsis, were similar between groups. Rates of complications and length of stay were also similar. A subgroup analysis demonstrated that patients intubated at the time of randomization had more event-free days with operative treatment, but as Mike points out, this is hypothesis-generating at best. Paper 13, Safety and Outcomes of Short-Term Use of Peripheral Vasoactive Infusions in Critically Ill Pediatric Population in the Emergency Department. For quite some time now, most of us have been comfortable using peripheral vasopressors in adult patients in shock, providing we're using them for a short period of time and converting to central venous access as soon as it's reasonable to do so. In PEDS patients, this may be even more of an issue, as many of us, ding, 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 me right here, have placed few, if any, CVLs in children. So the procedure time could be far longer, delaying the administration of the much-needed presser in a critically ill child. This is a retrospective cohort study of all children who received peripheral vasopressors over an eight-year period in a single ED in Singapore. Per their protocol, the infusion site was monitored at set time points and very frequently for any signs of extravasation, pain, redness, swelling. Now, among the 65 included cases, they found zero cases of extravasation, tissue necrosis, or limb ischemia. Unfortunately, we don't really have clinical information on the cases, and the retrospective nature of the data limits the value to some degree. But adding this to the growing consensus in the adult literature, it seems like it is likely a safe practice, provided the peripheral presser is used for a short period of time and the infusion site is closely monitored. For more on using peripheral vasopressor infusions, check out the MRAP February 2020 snack. Great to hear, right? Because kids, they're just little adults. Well, yes, exactly. Of course. (laughs) We always have been told that. Right. Paper 14. Urine testing is associated with inappropriate antibiotic use and increased length of stay in emergency department patients. This paper looked at UAs sent on patients who presented to the ED with abdominal pain, chest pain, headache, vaginal bleeding in pregnancy, and weakness or confusion in elderly females. About 75% of the patients with abdominal pain, vaginal bleeding, and weakness got a UA, 
and about 25% of the chest pain and headache patients did, but only about 15% had urinary symptoms in a positive culture. They found that for most of these complaints, the treatment rate was more than double the positive culture rate, indicating overtreatment. Length of stay was also about 30 minutes longer if a UA was ordered, not surprising. I don't agree with the author's take on weak and confused elderly women since a UTI can certainly cause those symptoms, but the take-home here is don't send a UA if it's not indicated. Remember, if you go fishing, you will find fish. I think this is a great point. I mean, the treating of the, quote, dirty UA in a patient who doesn't have appropriate symptoms for a urinary tract infection is just rampant. And I'm actually shocked that it only was 30 minutes longer when the UA I know, was right? ordered. I mean, where I mean is for that? me at least, it's like three hours longer. <laughs> no, that's exactly, I, you know, it's so funny you said that because I thought the same exact thing. I was like, 30 like, minutes, that's nothing. That's a bargain. <laughs> yeah. That's a bargain right there. Yeah, but you know what? Honestly, it's a good point that you make also, right? It's a lot harder to have a positive UA and say, well, I'm not going to treat it. Asymptomatic bacteria, we're mm-hmm. not supposed to treat that, right? It's a lot harder to do that than to not send one in the first place. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing that can happen is that you get that kind of equivocal or maybe dirty UA, and then you decide to send the culture because you're not sure. And now we're dealing with an added cost, an added lab time, and there's all these kind of downstream effects of getting a UA that you might not need. So it's really just kind of an important reminder for us to think about every test that we order. What am I looking for? Do I really need this test, right? Mm -hmm. Paper number 15. Prevalence and Sources of Duplicate Information in the Electronic Medical Record. It's a cool study. So here, the authors looked at over 100 million clinical notes in the UPenn health system over a five-year period. 100 million. That's so crazy. I know. It's crazy. They were, I'm assuming... It's like they looked at one billion. (laughs) There must have been some AI involved in this, right? Of course. So... They're looking in detail here at the problem of duplication in the medical record, meaning how often is something just copied directly from somewhere else? And their goal was to estimate the amount of duplication, looking at how that duplication varied by note type, and then seeing how much of that duplication is from the provider's own previous note or from someone else's note. In total, half of all clinical text was duplicated from a previous note. Half. Just over half of that duplicate text came from a previous note by the same author or even from earlier in the same note. So think about how you might have the same sentence in your HPI and then copy it down somewhere later in your assessment and plan. And 46% of that duplication came from notes by a different author. Now, interestingly, duplicated text was less common in kind of brief notes and H&Ps, you know, original notes of a visit, and much more common in notes that were written at a higher frequency. So think about your inpatient progress notes, which again makes sense, right? There couldn't be copying forward bits and pieces from the notes from the days before. The amount of duplicated text increased over the five-year study period that they looked at it. Now, this is a problem for many reasons, and Sanjay gets into this in a lot more detail in the full segment, but the two main ones that I see are that, you know, all of this duplicated text provides no new information. It's making the reader read things multiple times. You know, if there's the same sentence in the HNP or the HPI portion, and then you're just repeating it in your assessment and plan, you're making the reader read the same thing. So it increases the time that someone spent 
trying to find things in the chart and gives them more opportunity to miss other important stuff. More importantly, perhaps, though, is that when we're duplicating things, copying forward from someone else's note or from our own note, from the last visit or whatnot, it just allows errors to multiply, multiply, and go completely berserk in a chart to the point where it's beyond recognition, right? So somebody got something in the history wrong in one note back in 2015, and it's been copied forward in every note ever since. And the patient says, I don't know where that come from. I don't have that allergy or I don't have that in my past medical history. How often is that happening to you? It's a huge pet peeve of mine. So, you know, I don't know the solution to this. And Sanjay kind of points out the same thing. We'd have to kind of really rethink how charting is done. But this is a really interesting paper pointing out a pretty significant problem. Right. And I think part of it is, you know, when they tie reimbursement to like information in your nose, yeah, right? Yeah, 100%. Yep. And they're like, well, you got to have this in there and you got to have this in there and you got to have this in there. You know, that's how you get this note bloat. So mm-hmm. I think like the whole system needs to be changed. Mm-hmm. All right. Paper 16. Use of a semi-automatic text message system to improve satisfaction with wait time in the adult emergency department cross-sectional survey study. Waiting in general sucks. And if you're trying to be seen for an urgent condition, it sucks even more. Patients leave without being seen, the risk of hospital-acquired infections goes up, and people get mad. So what if there was a way to mitigate the suckiness? The authors of the study created a semi-automatic text messaging system that permitted low-acuity patients to wait outside of the hospital and come back closer to the time they could be seen. A homegrown satisfaction survey was distributed, which showed 97% of people liked it. That's well and good for this Switzerland-based hospital, but not sure it would fly in the U.S., given our legal and ethical constraints. Was the triage accurate? What if the patient tanks when they leave? So many things. Don't get me wrong. I love this idea and I think we need to do something. I'm just not sure this will pass muster in the States. Yeah, the medical legal aspects I think are challenging. Although I think people would love this. I mean, restaurants have turned to this a lot. You know, so you know, you could go wander around Manhattan within a few block radius and get a text message when your table is available. That's fantastic. So I think people would love this for the ED. I just I agree the you know, how bad was the triage? How, how right. good just, was the it triage? Takes, yeah. It takes one missed MI, mm-hmm. one missed stroke. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the thing. And then these systems crumble. Yeah, exactly. Paper number 17 Emotional Exhaustion Among U.S. Healthcare Workers Before and During the COVID 19 Pandemic. The goal of this paper is to quantify the impact of the COVID pandemic on our emotional exhaustion, something that we are all intimately familiar with. They looked at, or at least, I mean, maybe it's just me. I don't know. I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. No, it's it's 2023 now. We're all feeling great. They looked at a widely geographically dispersed hospital set, and they performed a survey in September 2019, before the pandemic, September 2020, relatively early in the pandemic and before vaccines, and then either in September or December 2021, or even into January 2022 depending on the hospital, but definitely after vaccines and vaccine mandates and kind of more into some of the later waves. Over the course of the study, the emotional exhaustion steadily increased from 32% to 35% to 40% across all different kinds of healthcare workers and hospital employees. Physicians had a slightly different trend in their emotional exhaustion. So it actually dipped a little bit at the start of the pandemic 
and then got worse again as the pandemic went on. And that might reflect some of the kind of like hero worship that was happening early on in the pandemic. So, and you know, maybe the volumes. The volumes, definitely the volumes dropped. So maybe that was it, but it definitely picked back up and then got worse as the pandemic went on. But for nurses and then all other workers, it just steadily went up. This comes as no surprise to most of us, right? It's obvious. But it's always good to have this documented in a study, in a journal, so we can remember to care for each other, but also so that we have evidence on which to argue for large-scale changes that are desperately needed. Amen. Paper 18, Law Enforcement in the Emergency Department. Prior studies have reported that the presence of law enforcement in the ED can disrupt care, interfere with privacy, exacerbate racial bias, and decrease trust in clinicians. This single-center study from Philly found that law enforcement officers were present in the ED about one-third of the time. They interacted with only 2% of ED patients, with an average time of five minutes for them and two and a half minutes for clinicians. Given the frequency of law enforcement presence and the impact it can have, the authors recommend that institutions develop policies that emphasize the patient's need for care, privacy, and autonomy when police officers are present. Agreed. All right. (laughs) And well, that wraps up our January Ultra Summary. May this year be better than the last and be filled with great things to come. Until next time. Ciao, ciao. (laughs) Ciao, ciao, ciao. It's it's time talk a little natty. Talk a little natty. With Ken Milne. Welcome to the January Time to Talk a Little Nerdy, January 2023. Happy New Year's to everybody out there in EMA land. And Ken, happy New Year's to you. Thank you, my friend. Right back at you. So uh, are you a guy that likes to set goals for the year or resolutions for the new year? I, I have in the past. I don't know really what's coming up for 2023. I would just be happy if... We were adequately staffed. Maybe that'll be my New Year's uh, Year's wish. It's not a resolution. It's just, can we just have adequate staffing, please? I think if we could ask for one thing, Ken, to give to all of the people who are practicing out there, it would be adequate staffing. That is our wish for the new year. I I wish for adequate staffing. If I got a genie in a bottle, Ken, I would just three times wish for the same thing. Yeah, I don't need three wishes. I just take the first one and I'd be happy. (laughs) All right, Ken, well, we are launching into 2023, and actually, we're going to build off of our last month segment in 2022, where we talked about retractions of journal articles and how even after retraction, the data in those articles continues to be incorporated into systematic reviews and meta-analyses. We chatted about how common this is, why it happens, and how it could possibly be remedied. This month, I thought we could build off that topic and dive a bit into how an article actually gets retracted in the first place. In fact, that almost seems like what we should have discussed first. How do articles get retracted? Can you game? Uh, bring it, bring it. All right, all right. Well, you shared with me some guidelines from the COPE organization, C-O-P-E organization. Let's start at the basics. What does COPE stand for? What do they strive to do? Sure, so COPE stands for the Committee on Publication Ethics, and it has the aim of moving the culture of publishing towards one where Ethical practices become a normal part of the publishing cultures. So they set up this guideline. And remember, guidelines should guide 
our behavior, not dictate our behavior. And you would wish that we wouldn't need a committee to actually say that publishing should be ethical, and we're going to try to give some guidance to do that, but we don't quite have that. So this is where we are, and let's talk about why. What's the purpose of retracting an article, which I know sounds very basic, and we discussed a little bit of this last month, but let's just restate everything. Well, as Simon Sinek's book says, it starts with why. So post-publication peer review, it's a fundamental part of the scientific process in searching for the truth, the truth being the best point estimate of an observed effect size with a confidence interval around the point estimate. But sometimes, Swami, serious flaws, errors, or even fraud is discovered after a study has been published. And retracting an article, that acts as a mechanism to protect against unreliable content with findings and conclusions that shouldn't be relied upon or be part of the medical literature. We've seen a lot of errors and flaws, and I think more fraud than we are used to in the last two years with the COVID pandemic and all of the publications. It's unclear exactly why, aside from people just pushing stuff through, but there's been quite a bit of data that seems to be quite falsified. Aside from fraud, which I think is a pretty basic and clear reason, when should editors consider retracting a publication? Well, there are several things that should trigger a retraction by an editor, and Cope lists eight items, but in the typical Ken fashion, (laughs) I condensed it down to five for the listeners. So let's go through those five. The first thing, I mean, if there is clear evidence that the findings are unreliable, either because you know, a major error was identified or because the data was fabricated or falsified, yeah, that should be retracted. How about if information has been plagiarized? That's a no-no. But also, if it's been published elsewhere and you haven't attributed the previous source or disclosed to the editor that it was published elsewhere, or you didn't get permission to republish it, or you're infringing on a copyright, or some other serious legal issue in that area, or you didn't provide a justification of why you're republishing it. So there's sort of two things baked in there. One is, I mean, clear plagiarizing, taking somebody else's work and, you know, saying that it's your own, or taking someone else's work and you don't have permission to use that person's work. But the other thing is you could take your own work and recycle it and republish it, which you can do in certain situations. But you need to be explicit about it, identify it, tell the editors, and have a good reason why you're recycling this information in a new format. And then the third thing is, hey, straight up, it's unethical. There's some unethical research being done. You didn't get ethics approval, or you're doing something that crosses an ethical line. That shouldn't be published, so it should be retracted. The fourth thing is, only by compromising or manipulating the peer review process, did the manuscript actually get published in the first place? So working through that process, if it had been compromised, then the editor should retract that. And then the uh, fifth and final thing, and we've talked about stuff like this before, but if the authors failed to disclose some major competing interest, i.e. financial conflicts of interest, intellectual conflicts of interest, some kind of conflict of interest, but it would have to be unduly affecting the interpretation of the work or the recommendations by the editors and peer reviewers, 
especially if they didn't know about it. So you didn't disclose it. Those are the five things. Okay. I love that. So five reasons to consider that retraction. And one of the things that the COPE guidelines gets into as well is discussing retraction versus correction. Sometimes a mistake is made. It is truly just a mistake. And so correction might be the better way to progress. Where do they believe that line exists between correcting flawed data or a flawed publication versus retracting it wholesale? Yeah, that's a, that's a bit of a fuzzy line. I mean, generally the correction is when there's only, you know, a small error or perhaps just a little bit about a plagiarism. I don't know. Like what's a little, a little bit pregnant, a yeah, little plagiarism. Like what's a little plagiarism? <laughs> like I just, you know, like you can see how this would be really difficult to say, well, it was 1.35% over this hard red line. I mean, you're going to have to apply this sort of correction on a case by case basis. I know there was a recent case with a really famous, famous paper and they found in one of the tables, it was missing a bracket or a parentheses. And so they issued a correction. I'm like, really? You know, like, I'm sure I've, I mean, I'm the king of typos and uh, oops, or autocorrect. And, you know, like, I can see how some of these things creep in. So on the extreme ends of things, it's really easy. Oh, that was unethical. You plagiarized it. On the other end of it is like, ooh, there's a typo. Which, which is which? There, there is there. I mean, that's really ridiculous. I mean, you don't need to issue a correction for that. But I mean, if there are small errors or something, I get it. Just say, oh, we've, we found a, a small error and we're going to you know, issue a correction. But boy, there's some fuzziness in between on where you draw that line. Absolutely. Now, once the decision is made to retract, what does COPE recommend and how this should progress? How should it happen once the retraction decision is made? Yeah, that's, that's a good question because, you know, once you've identified it, what do you do with that information? And so COPE suggests a few things should be done and five, yeah, it's five. <laughs> so the first thing is the retraction should be linked to the article in all their online versions of that article. So you can see how that's, you know, quite possible to do. Just throw it up, flag it, it's retracted, it's in that ether of electronic stuff. Much harder to do and get back all the print journals and stamp retracted on it. So, you know, something that's very doable. So that's the first thing. If there's a retracted article, link it to all the online versions. And then the second part is clearly identify that it's retracted. You don't want it in some tiny little print. You want it up front saying this has been retracted. And so it's easily identifiable to the reader. The third thing is that once that retraction has been decided, you know, the editors said, yeah, we, we need to retract this. You need to act on it promptly to minimize any potential harmful effects. And then I like this, make it open access. So don't put it behind a paywall. So if the article is retracted, flag it, but then everybody should be able to have access to it without paying. The fourth thing is stating who is retracting the article and give the reasons. Say why it's being retracted. So it's not some opaque thing like, oh, it's retracted. No. What are the specific reasons? And the fifth thing they say is when that retraction is done, it should be done for objective reasons, factual issues, and avoid any inflammatory language. So just keep it very clinical, very, yep, we've retracted it. Here's why. I like this. And I like that COPE also goes into some situations where there are problems, but it shouldn't lead to a retraction. We talked about the minor corrections that can occur, but they really are very explicit 
about when retraction isn't the appropriate step. And Ken, tell me you have five different reasons. Oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> I have five. Yeah, most, most of the effort for putting this episode together was for me to either condense things <laughs> down to five or expand them to five. Yeah, but I have five, yes. I'm very, if anything, predictable. So uh, here's what they said. Now, if there's no concern about the validity of the finding, but rather there's a dispute about authorship and science is messy and yes, people go, hey, I should be on that paper. And other people are like, yeah, you really didn't contribute enough. So if there's some dispute about something like authorship, okay, uh, you don't need to retract the article because it's not really threatening the validity of the findings. You can trust the results. The second thing is if corrections could address the errors and concerns with the key findings still being reliable. So if it's a small error, right, you don't need to retract it because the overall message is the same and it doesn't impact the ultimate outcome. Let's say, you know, a p-value is misstated or something like that, but it's really, really a small little thing. And it's not whether or not it crosses that magical 0.05 line. It's something else. The third thing is, if there is inconclusive evidence, you know, so sometimes we as editors, because I'm a senior editor for a journal, we won't have conclusive evidence. And so should you really take that big step of doing a retraction when the evidence isn't clear? The fourth thing is if additional information could be obtained to clear up the issue, like maybe the institution where the research was done could do an investigation and look into it. Okay, well, we're not going to retract things right now. Let's have an internal investigation at the institution where the research was conducted and see what happens. And then the fifth thing is, if the author's conflicts of interest were reported to the journal after the publication, but in the opinion of the editors, they're unlikely to have influenced the interpretation or recommendations, or the conclusions of the article. Because conflicts of interest, again, like most things, are on a spectrum. Oh, did you uh, have your name put down for the residence lunch because they needed somebody's name to put down, but you weren't even there or something like that, and it shows up on ProPublica for lunch under your name for $25 versus, you know, you're a paid employee of the company. I mean, again... Either ends of the spectrum are really easy. I guess maybe I should have said, hey, you have a pen with a pharmaceutical name on it. Mm. You took it <laughs> or it was given to you as a gift. Yeah. So if you don't think the conflicts of interest are really going to impact the uh, validity or overall interpretation of the results, then yeah, a retraction really isn't the correct step. All right. So COPE is clear with when they think retraction should occur. They're also fairly clear on when they think retraction isn't the appropriate step. Are there any other options that they lay out in terms of what to do when there are issues with the publication? Ah, yes. The, this is not a false dichotomy. There, there is a third way, a third option available to editors. Retraction. I mean, that in, in the world of you know, medical publishing, this is the nuclear option, right? We're going to mm. retract your paper. You can see how that's going to get a lot of maybe pushback. You better make sure that you've got everything in order before you retract a paper. And corrections, you know, that's very reasonable for minor infractions or minor errors. But there is this relatively new option, and that is to publish an expression of concern. We have some concerns about this publication. And I've seen this come up in the last couple of years with COVID 
and then see it play out. So you'll see a paper, it's published, but then subsequently the online version will have something. We, we would like to express some concerns about this publication. And it can be used to flag the article where there are possible concerns or problems with the article itself. When does Cope suggest that journals issue that expression of concern? Well, they think that an expression of concern should be issued if the editors receive inconclusive evidence of research or publication misconduct by the authors, if there's evidence the findings are unreliable, but the author's institution is not going to investigate. So you remember how previously I said you could say maybe not retract an article, but what do you do? Well, maybe the institution can conduct an investigation. Well, if the institution isn't going to conduct an investigation, but you have concerns, but you can't, you know, do a retraction, you could just post, yeah, well, we have some concerns, but the home institution where the study was being conducted has no plans to conduct a formal inquiry into it. A third thing is if the editors believe an investigation into the alleged misconduct related to the publication either has not been done, or if it was done, it wouldn't be fair or impartial or conclusive. And then a fourth reason is if the investigation is already underway, but a judgment will be significantly delayed. And again, that's with trying to mitigate any potential problems of data being relied upon. You know, I'm thinking for clinical practice, it might be better just to flag it and say, hey, we have some concerns. There's an investigation undergoing. We don't know how this is going to play out, but there is an investigation. But just caution. It's almost like the disclaimer in a pre-publication where some of the websites for pre-publication will say, hey, this hasn't undergone through peer review, so you shouldn't rely on this for clinical practice until a peer review process has been taking place. So if an investigation is taking place, hey, just hold off. Be, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for here, Swami? Skeptical? Be Be skeptical, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, be skeptical about this information and until such investigation or, or inquiry is complete. And then the fifth thing is the expression of concern should be linked to the article, just like a retraction. You should flag it and say, yeah. And so be clear. Yeah, we have an expression of concern. So on the online version, you'll see that state the reason for the concern. You know, we're concerned about the randomization. We're concerned about the blinding. We're concerned about the funding. We're concerned, you know, just be explicit. And if more information does become available, then, you know, an exonerating statement can also be placed. Yep, we looked into it. Everything's great. Super. I don't mind people looking into my publications and and what I've done. And if there's concerns, I'd like them to be addressed. And of course, exonerated. And, you know, if it's just a thing like a minor error or correction, great. Put a correction up there. I make mistakes. I've made mistakes. Please, the post-publication peer review process is a fundamental part of science. So happy to have my work looked at, crowdsourced, looked at by other experts and say, hey, you know, you made an error here. You made a statistical error here. Or this, you should have applied this method. Okay, great, super, a correction. Or, you know, the nuclear option, a retraction notice can be published. And I really do like how the group has laid out a number of different options. And I think if journals and editors stick with these kind of guidelines or they employ these kind of guidelines, they can really help us to trust the medical literature a little bit more. And also, I think you mentioned this a couple of times, but the transparency around retractions or corrections 
really should be there. And the COPE guidelines help us to have that. We really do need that transparency when data is brought into question and when retractions actually happen. This probably feeds back into what we talked about last month with how these retractions should not only occur, but how they should be pulled out. Those data should be pulled out from the meta-analyses and the systematic reviews. But without transparency, none of that is ever going to happen. And I think that's really what the COPE guidelines try to push for. They try to push for transparency and making this happen. And I love this topic. Thank you for recommending it. And I do want to say that we did four lists of five, which is good, but I think we can get better next time, Ken. We can do five lists of five. <laughs> five of five. Five of five. Yeah. That's what our that's our goal for this. That's our actual resolution for this year. At some point, we're gonna have five lists of five in one of our podcasts. I think it's possible. Yes, we can. We can do it. We can do it. But I like to circle this all the way back to stuff I'm always talking about and advocating for, and that's about evidence-based medicine. And the listeners will know that one of the three pillars of evidence-based medicine is the literature. And so if we can raise the bar, as Simon Carley says, you know, we need to raise the bar. We need to make this process even better. And we can improve the scientific process with things like transparency and being honest and open and humble about the research process. It doesn't mean that science is wrong. It means this is the scientific method working the way it should work. In other words, post-publication peer review. Not everything will survive that, just like not everything survives getting out of the lab getting written, getting submitted, surviving peer review, and post-peer review is part of that. And that's one way we can get the best information rising to the top, and so patients get the best care based on the best evidence, because that's our, that's our ultimate goal. Absolutely. All right, Ken, well, thanks for kicking off the year with such a great topic, a great discussion. Hopefully, people will pop on to the show notes, and they will check out those retraction guidelines from COPE. Although I do think that we summarize them quite well here, it's always nice to have the actual guidelines readily available if you want to refer to them. And of course, we'll be back in February with another time to talk a little nerdy. And until then, everyone out there in EMA land, remember to stay nerdy. And skeptical. And so it has been said, and so it has been written. I think 2023 started out with a bang. Boom! You think so, huh? Yeah, going to be a good one? Has to be good, right? Doesn't it have to be good? Oh, yeah. We're due for a good one. I mean, I feel like, you know, we're, we're bottomed out, right? I feel like at some point... Yeah, only- we were bottomed out last year. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we were wrong about that. <laughs> or maybe... No, I guess the question is, like, is the bottom, like, are we going to hit the bottom and bounce up like a ball, or are we going to hit it in, like, like, a turd and just sort of splatter Everywhere. Ah, so I'm hoping be, for the ball analogy. It's not going to be a splatter. Get out there with your resolutions, this everybody. Make right. 23 our year. Let's take it back. Take them back 2023, even though it just started maybe today, if you're listening to this program today. And if you're not, if you're like two years late, you can just make fun of us for, for knowing, knowing in 2025 how epically great slash bad 2023 really was. Well, Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. And, Stay uh, safe. One thing you got to do this year. You got to resolve to do it. Is stay classy.